Hey there, guys. Thanks for checking out the John Cabish Show podcast edition. This was the episode recorded on Monday, April the 20th, 2020. And the name of the episode was Avengers Endgame Turns 1 and Its Significance One Year Later. And remember, guys, to check out the full experience of The John Cabot Show, make sure you also subscribe to our YouTube channel simply over at youtube.com slash John And you can also get questions put in on the live questions part of the show by any time going to streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You can find the link to that in the description of this podcast and get your question on the show and support the show at the same time. For now, let's get to the show. Now let's move on to a couple of off the top things here. And the first thing we're going to start with is this, you know, James Gunn is somebody we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years on the good side, because he makes really fun movies. We enjoy watching on the negative side because of all the drama he had with Disney and stuff like that. But he is back. And of course, making the new Suicide Squad movie for Warner Brothers, a movie that's got me very excited because while that wasn't the movie I would have picked James Gunn to do over at Warner Brothers with DC, it was certainly one that caught my attention when they said that's the one he's going to do because he clearly has a talent for taking eclectic, weird, oddball characters in a cinematic universe and making something really fun out of them. Just look what he did with Guardians of the Galaxy. So that's exciting to see. Well, one of the questions that's been going around a lot with, with a lot of people is, what is... Suicide Squad going to be rated? Well, James Gunn was just addressing that. Now, he's talked about it before, but we're getting closer. He just addressed that on his social media when somebody asked him that specific question. And basically what James Gunn said was this. So he says, uh, what rating will it be? Well, this is a few weeks ago. What rating will it be? Do you know? And James Gunn said, oh, yes, I know, but I can't say yet. And now he was just asked again. And his simple reply was just wait and see. So right now, James Gunn is staying a little bit coy about whether or not the new Suicide Squad will be rated R or whether it will indeed be rated PG-13 like most other comic book movies. I think there's strong arguments to be made for both sides. On the PG-13 side, you know, we've said many, many times and in many, many different ways, you can get away a lot today with a PG-13 rating, especially in comic book movies. Like there's a lot you can do in PG-13 rated movies. So there's a lot you can do there. Also, generally speaking, not always, I'm saying generally speaking, PG-13 movies tend to make more money than R-rated movies do. There are some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's that's just a fact. I mean, that's a statistical fact. So there's that as well. Plus, we know that James Gunn could do bonkers stuff with PG-13. We saw him do it with Guardians of the Galaxy. However, I think there's a good argument to be made about why we should expect maybe Suicide Squad to be rated R. First of all, there aren't many comic properties. Like everybody says, oh, I want this rated R and I want that rated R. I want everything rated R. And for the most part, there's no point to it. But there are a couple of comic book properties where an R rating could feel very appropriate. And depending on your approach, a Suicide Squad could very well be one of those comic book properties that would very well fit into an R-rated type of scenario. The other argument I think you can make, Rob, about why you maybe can expect Suicide Squad, this one under James Gunn to be rated R, is because Warner Brothers lately has been very comfortable experimenting with the R rating. They did it with Joker. Joker's a little bit of a different situation. I understand that, but still, they, they did it with Joker. But more comparable is they did it with Birds of Prey and the fabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn that flopped. But but they did. I mean, so clearly they've shown they are comfortable doing with it. So, Rob, if I had to go out on a limb and bet one dollar, 
No more than one dollar. If I had to go I out and lend my dollar, <laughs> I my guess would be that was a good invitation, by the way. My guess would be, and it's purely a guess. My guess would be they're going to go rated R, because remember when James Gunn was transitioning, and every single like after him and Disney parted ways, they've since made up, kissed and made up. But when they did part ways. Every single studio was lining up and offering James Gunn whatever he wanted. So he had a lot of leverage. I won't be surprised at all to find out part of his pitch was, okay, I'll come do Suicide Squad, but I want to do Rated R. And I got a feeling Warner Brothers would probably be okay with that. And again, they've shown lately they're they're comfortable with the R rating. Suicide Squad seems to be a property you can do this with. I think it's going to be Rated R. Rob, what would you say are the arguments for and against which way James Gunn will go with this? Suicide Squad PG-13 or Suicide Squad Rated R? How do you see it? Well, first of all, with a movie called Suicide Squad, you want it to be kick-ass. You want it in your face. You want it hardcore. That's why they're the Suicide Squad. And I think that making it R-rated seems like a natural progression, especially, you know, James Gunn is an auteur. And when you look at things he's done in the past, like Super, which was also R-rated, I think that that having a sensibility a sensibility like James Gunn's that's untethered to say the needs of the MCU when it doesn't necessarily have to be well family friendly uh allowing him to unleash his sensibilities I think means box office dollars uh, I mean I see James Gunn as sort of the cinematic equivalent of Deadpool the character the way that Ryan Reynolds plays Deadpool I think James Gunn can be that kind of a filmmaker and I'm not saying that he, he's going to make a movie like Deadpool, but James Gunn has a, wa- a wild and woolly sensibility. And if he needs to careen into the R-rated world, I think he can easily do it. And I I think this movie would, would very much lend itself to that. And if you go that auteur route, I mean, Todd Phillips was able, like you said, to make Joker to great effect. And Harley Quinn, you know, maybe not so much, but I think they, I think they're going to let him go r I really do. And do you think giving him permission to do that, that he'll take advantage of that, or will he want to stay in the Guardians of the Galaxy area and keep it PG-13? Do you think he'll want to go R? I think he'll absolutely want to go R, because he's yeah, got Guardians 3 coming up, and, and what, what you know he's got that sort of spirit of anarchy in him, and he, he can go a little crazy, and I think that's what people want from this kind of movie. And I think I'll tell you, the glimpses we had early on of the costumes and things we're pretty goofy, but if you see that and then suddenly people are having their ling- limbs hacked off and it goes it goes hardcore, then it becomes a whole vision, and I, I can see that James Gunn is going to do that, sort of to confound expectations. And, and by the way, who doesn't want to see that? Can you imagine if they drop a trailer that shows, yes, this is an R-rated movie? I think people are going to go bananas. I think people too. Now, there will be some people out there that will be tempted to say, well, you know, Birds of Prey did not do well. And they'll say, well, you know, if you so therefore, if you make comic book radios, movies rated R, it can't do well. Listen, there are several reasons why Birds of Prey didn't do great. And I don't think any of them had to do with it being R rated. Now, did that prevent some people from going? Maybe if it was a PG-13 film, would more families have taken their kids to it? Maybe. But it just wasn't that good of a movie. I mean, right. I know I know the movie has its fans. The movie has its fans, and I respect that, and that's great. And I don't think Birds of Prey was terrible, by the way. I don't. But it was a, a movie you were making with a side character as your lead. 
It was horribly titled because nobody cares about Birds of Prey in the movie audience. They cared about Harley Quinn. It was pretty badly marketed and just overall wasn't that good of a movie. So I, I don't think the R rating had a lot to do with that. So I think I think Suicide Squad's going to be rated R. How good or bad that's going to end up being for them? We'll have to wait and find out. Question here is, guys, what do you think Warner Brothers and James Gunn is going to do with Suicide Squad? Do you think they're going to make it PG-13 like a more traditional comic book movie? Do you think they might push it like they have lately with Harley Quinn and and um, Joker and go into the R rating? What do you guys think is going to happen? What do you think should happen? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right. With that down, let's do one more off the top. And Rob, this one was interesting. This one is interesting. Now, we all know at this point, at least most of us know, that at one point, Darren Aronofsky, the great director, hmm. was lining up and preparing to do a Batman year one movie for Warner Brothers. Now, that movie eventually got derailed. Not a lot is known about it and all that kind of stuff. Well, Darren Aronofsky recently made a little bit of a revelation. We know that he wanted to go really dark, so dark that even Frank Miller said he thought my Batman was too nice. That's what Frank Miller said about, about Darinovsky's Batman plans. But Darren Aronofsky just gave a really interesting revelation. He said this, that as he was preparing to do this Batman movie, he wanted Joaquin Phoenix to be Batman, which I, I'll admit, listen, I, I love Joaquin Phoenix. He's a great, uh, I mean, an Academy Award winning actor. He's amazing. I don't know that I see him as Batman, but but be that as it may, Aronofsky knows what he had in the in his mind. So I'll just respect that. But while he wanted a Joaquin Phoenix to be Batman, Warner Brothers, says Darren Aronofsky, wanted Freddie Prinze Jr. What? to be Batman. They wanted Freddie Prinze Jr. to be Batman. Now, to which Aronofsky then said, it became pretty clear to me that Warner Brothers and I had very different ideas about the type of movie that we were going to make. Now, let me throw this out there. Because if you're like me, probably there's a lot of people all, all out there right now that had the instant knee-jerk reaction of Freddie Prince Jr. as Batman. I just the, did. Yeah, yeah the, the She's All That or whatever that movie was, the Scooby-Doo, you know, whatever guy. I get it. But here's the thing. I, I want to throw this out there. And there's going to be a lot of people that won't agree with me on this, and that's perfectly fine. But let me throw this out there. It is very difficult to judge any actor when the majority of the films you watch them in are catered to a certain audience, right? So when you appear in, a, in films like Scooby-Doo, you're not going to get a gauge of what that actor actually is and really what that actor can do. When you watch an actor, I keep forgetting the name of that little rom-com. It is it She's All That or something, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, with Rachel Lee Cook. All That's right. right, who was gorgeous in that. But, you know, a movie like that isn't actually going to give you a good perspective of how good or not good of an actor that person is. And I want to throw this out there. Back in 2010, 2011, so almost 10 years ago, I will agree. I thought of Freddie Prince Jr. as this, oh yeah, pop culture dude and whatever. And and full disclosure, just so you know, I I know Freddie Prince Jr. So there's there's so so understand that. So take that with a grain of salt. But this is true. Ten years ago, I had the same impression in my head that Freddie Prince Jr. is this popular but just 
sugar-coated puff piece of a of a celebrity that there's not a lot of there. But then he appeared in a show I really liked with Kiefer Sutherland called 24. And he was awesome in 24. I really loved him in 24. I thought yeah. he was great. And it was that was the thing to me that I watched and I went, huh, this guy's actually really good. And I never would have anticipated that or expected that just from watching him and that other stuff. But it's like, it's like Robert Pattinson, right, Rob? Like if all you ever saw Robert Pattinson in was Twilight, it's difficult to have any type of an assessment about how yeah. good or not good of an actor is he. It's not until you see him in some of that other material that you realize he's pretty good. And I'll tell you what, while I am not standing here saying, don't get me wrong, I am not standing here saying that Freddie Prince Jr. would have been the next great Batman. He would have been better than Christian. I'm not saying that, but seeing what he's actually capable of when the material calls for it, I'm just I'm just going to say that there was a chance, a chance that this could have been another Heath Ledger situation. Because, you know, when they when they cast Heath Ledger, everybody guffawed and go, what? If that guy is Joker? And look how it turned out. Now, I'm not saying that's what would have happened with Freddie Prince Jr., but seeing what kind of depth of talent he actually has... I think the potential is there that maybe that could have happened, but I don't know. Still, it's fascinating to hear Darren Aronofsky saying that Warner Brothers wanted Freddie Prince. Rob, you just heard this. Uh, what What is your, you know, kind of what's your reaction to a story like that? Because this is another one of those great Hollywood stories. But what's your reaction to that? Well, you know, look, I've always believed that um, actors sometimes, like anybody in Hollywood, a lot of it has to do with luck. You could be tremendously talented, but if you don't get into the right project that showcases those talents, you might never get recognized and get the opportunities that you should have. And obviously, I like, I've always liked Freddie Prince Jr. as, and by the way, to tell you the truth, I, I, I have a secret love of She's All That, to be honest. That whole movie, I like it. But when you have a director who sees something in an actor and like personally says, I want uh, this actor... And that's not the case with Darren Aronofsky here. But I think sometimes you can strike gold because an actor knows what they're getting and they will step up and they'll do everything they can to throw themselves into that kind of work. Now, Aronofsky wanting Joaquin Phoenix is a very different vision for the Batman than, say, the Freddie Prince version of that character. But if he was given that opportunity, he might have stepped up and knocked it out of the park and we might have we might have been given something we never expected. And I, I think a lot of the time, you know, Freddie Prince Jr. has been acting for quite some time. And in my mind, he's always given his all. It's just that the projects that he's he's been hired ha have never offered him or afforded him the opportunity to do something like playing Batman might. And I think it's always interesting to see what an actor could have done with something. Uh, if Unfortunately, we're never, we'll never know. But it's interesting to hear that that was the case. I mean, and it's also interesting to hear that Joaquin Phoenix might have been Batman. I, and now that we've seen him play Joker, it's hard to imagine what his oh, Batman yeah. would have been like. And I'm so grateful that didn't happen because if he had been Batman at some point years ago, we never would have gotten him in this Joker movie. No. Which uh, the Academy Award on his mantle says is a pr probably a pretty good thing that that oh, happened. Yeah. All right, guys. Question here is, what do you think about this? I'm sure probably a lot of you had the same kind of reactions. Like, wait, what, Freddie Prince? 
are you is that where you're at or are you like me when i thought about it a little bit more and i thought about some of the really better stuff that freddie freddie has done before that maybe there's a chance it actually could have been really special i don't know what do you guys think about it it is kind of jarring when you hear it but jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts all right guys with all that down and out of the way, we're going to move on to our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campion Show? Well, you see, it's really rather simple. You guys come up with our main topics by going anytime, 24-7, over to www.thejohncampionshow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, let's get on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Geeky Gator, who writes, Hey, John and crew. James Gunn said on his Instagram that he has no plans to do a Guardians of the Galaxy 4. After Guardians 3 is made and released, do you think James Gunn will continue to work with Marvel or will he want to move on? Will he still be able to work for DC and Marvel? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, of course, we just talked about James Gunn doing Suicide Squad, but lest we forget, he is also now, thank the movie gods, he is back on doing Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and that he wrote the script for years ago now, and I'm sure he's going to do a little bit of adapting for that, but there you have it. But yeah, he just recently revealed that as of right now, he's got no plans to do for. This is what uh, this says. Now, this comes to us from MovieWeb where they wrote, specifically, James Gunn was asked about making a possible Guardians of the Galaxy 4 after completion of the long-awaited third installment. That's Guardians 3. As it stands, Gunn has no intention of making a fourth movie. The director noted that he planned to do a trilogy from the beginning if the first one worked out. Gunn concluded by saying, no plans to do a fourth film. All right, so that comes to us from James Gunn. Now, when you hear something like that, again, our first reactions may differ from the reaction that we have after we think about it for a minute or two. Because you think about James Gunn, we just associate him with Guardians of the Galaxy. In Hollywood, if you do a successful movie, you think if you can keep doing that success, keep on rolling and all that kind of stuff. And it's hard for us to imagine that if Guardians 3 is as successful as we hope it'll be as the other two, then Disney would want to make a fourth one. But at the same time, there's this. I'm a believer, for those of you who've watched me for any period of time, I'm actually a believer that a director shouldn't stay on one property for too long. And I believe it eventually starts to sap their creativity. Unless you do something like what Christopher Nolan did with the Batman series, where he did a Batman movie, then he did a different movie. Then he did a Batman movie, then he did a different movie. Then he did a Batman So he made sure he kept his creative knives sharp. You know what I mean? James Gunn's been afforded that opportunity now through some really weird circumstances, mind you. But he did his Guardians movie, he did his Guardians 2, and now he's gone off and done something else. He's done Suicide Squad. But the idea of, yeah, I've done three. I don't want to define my entire self and my entire career by one property. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a feeling this will be his last Guardians film. That being said... That doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to see James Gunn do more stuff with Marvel. Now, remember, before the big fallout, when he and Disney had to part ways there for a while, Kevin Feige had kind of knighted James Gunn as his main consigliere when it comes to the cosmic reach of the MCU. So clearly, Kevin Feige has a great affinity for James Gunn. So I wouldn't be surprised at all that, number one, 
hit my microphone, that number one, Guardians 3 will be the final Guardians film that James Gunn does. But number two, that we'll still see James Gunn involved either directing or producing or writing other MCU stuff. And by the way, I think, depending on the success of Suicide Squad, I think we're going to see him do more stuff with Warner Brothers, Rob. I I do, moving forward. Uh, Unless, of course, Suicide Squad ends up being an unmitigated failure. But So yeah, I don't see that precluding him from doing any of that stuff. Rob, you hear James Gunn talking about this. Do you think he should or shouldn't come back to do Guardians 4? And do you think he will or won't come back to do a Guardians 4? How do you see it? Well, look, I think you're exactly right about filmmakers staying on a property for too long. You want to have a career. And when you have successful films, filmmakers want to use that success to go after their passion projects. I think you look at Christopher Nolan, the way he's handled his career, especially over at Warner Brothers, he would do one for himself and then one for them. He does Batman Begins, it does well, then he comes back and he'll do something like The Prestige. Then Dark Knight gets him Inception. And then now, you know, I don't think anyone else in the world could have got Dunkirk made. And so he's been at Warner Brothers and has a, had a successful relationship making their movies that they want him to make. And then he gets to make his own original films as well. And having that kind of clout is the ultimate in Hollywood. You want that. You want that relationship with a studio. And with Marvel, James Gunn knows he's only going to go so far. And I think by doing three Guardians of the Galaxy movies, I mean, that's it. People are going to love that. Even the Marvel model, are they going to make four movies? We haven't seen Iron Man 4. We're not going to see maybe Captain America 4 unless it's somebody else in the role, maybe. So the idea that there's even a, a Guardians of the Galaxy 4 in the offing, I mean, we're not going to get Guardians 3 for another couple of years. And I think James Gunn's got Suicide Squad coming out. And if it does very well... I think Warner Brothers is going to be like, come back, James, come back. We'll write you a big fat check. What do you want to make for us? And that's what you have. You have to wield that clout to build your career because, as everyone knows, you're only good as your last project. And and I think if, if James Gunn has that kind of clout, hey, if he has an idea for uh, a number four for Guardians, great. But I think he wants to make stuff that he hasn't been able to make before, and that's what this kind of clout buys him. I agree. Question here is, guys. What do you think is going to happen here? Number one, do you think James Gunn would come back and do a number four? Do you think he should come back and do another four? Or do you think he should move on and do other properties with and without Marvel? What do you guys think? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down and out of the way, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Greg Yaffet, who writes... Hey, gentlemen, this week marks the one-year anniversary, oh my gosh, of Avengers Endgame. It was one of the most highly anticipated movies of all time and currently the biggest box office movie of all time. As you look back, how would you describe the significance of the movie now, one year later? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And it is weird to think about. It just feels like it was a few months ago that we were all run into the movie theater. Rob, you and I ran down to the Disney lot to go to go watch, you know, the first <clears throat> press screening of it. I, I was fortunate enough to be at the premiere as well and all that kind of stuff. That was a year ago this week. This week is the one year anniversary of the release of Endgame. Yep. And and there's a couple of things to think about that. First of all, let's look at it in context of its significance in terms of box office. As you pointed out, 
it is the biggest box office film of all time. And it's funny, when you look at Avengers Endgame and Avatar, which are only separated by $7 million, but you look at them, and then you look at the third place movie that's like 400 or however many million, 500 million behind them or more, almost 600 million, that's it, close to 600 million, 600 million behind. Like So you got Endgame and Avatar, and then like way down there are movies like Titanic, Star Wars, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, and Avengers Infinity War. Um, it is crazy when you think about that. And Avatar, you can never forget this. And I, I think we overlook this a lot. Avatar held that top spot, Rob, for nearly a decade. I mean, that that is, can you imagine that? That holding, like, especially when you want to consider all the different changes in the movie industry and all that kind of stuff, for a film to hold that spot for that long, and it took a film like Endgame to come along. Granted, it took a 20-plus film buildup with every known superstar in Hollywood and a 10 years of, of a build, but for a movie to finally topple that record, you cannot underestimate that, and you cannot sell that short. Like, that, that was huge. But also, Rob, it delivered to us something that I don't think we have had in a long time. Now, look, I don't think Endgame is the greatest comic book movie of all time. Hell, it's great, but I don't think it's a top five. I think it's in the top ten. I think it's fantastic. I love Endgame. But even if you're like me and you don't necessarily feel like it's a top five or a top three or, or, or a top one, what it did as a movie, Rob, I put it like this. Endgame was the fulfillment of the promise of comic book movies. You know, the notion of comic book movies existing, it kind of implicitly suggested to geeks and the pop culture community there was a promise there about what comic book movies can be. And while I don't think Endgame is the best one that's ever done, it was in many ways the fulfillment of that promise of a big, huge connected story that comes together in a huge, very satisfying, climactic ending with all these heroes you've dreamed about and thought about since you were a kid coming on on screen in a satisfying, entertaining, exciting, thrilling, on-screen spectacle that delivered thrills and delivered chills and delivered cheers and all that kind of stuff. It was the fulfillment of that promise that we've had as movie fans for decades with the whole comic book genre. And I think there's positive and negative effects there, Rob, because the positives are obvious about really, like even before Endgame came out, Rob, the comic book genre had already been established as the most dominant genre in the movie industry today. But Endgame puts an explanation point on that. Yeah. Not just with the box office success, but with the pop culture dominance. Right? It really did put an explanation point on that. The downside, though, of Endgame, and Rob, you and I have talked about this a couple of times, has been every other movie to now come out or that is coming out after Endgame, eh. I mean, I mean, it, it just it's just not as exciting because we feel like we're coming down off that crescendo a little bit, and you and I have talked about that a lot. But Rob, the significance of what Endgame did and the significance of what it was just as a movie and being that fulfillment of the promise of the genre, I think you cannot understate or overstate, I should say, the significance of this film, 
even now, one year later. Uh, and we talk about it just as much and just as much excitement. And by the way, just a little side note, guys, since it is the one-year anniversary, uh, later this week, either on Thursday or Friday, I'll let you know exactly when, we are going to do a watch party um, of uh, Avengers Endgame. We did a watch party of Infinity War. That was a lot of fun. We're going to do a watch party of Endgame later this week, so keep your guys' eyes open for that. But Rob, here we now sit one year ago this week, is when Avengers finally hit theaters for everybody. What are your thoughts on the movie looking back now? But more importantly, what do you see as the significance of this movie to the landscape of the film industry right now? Well, good questions. I think what you said about how it it fulfilled the promise of what the MCU was was supposed to be is 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 pretty much dead on. Because nobody had ever attempted something as ambitious as what the Marvel Cinematic Universe did in a decade. Uh, and the fact that, sure, in the beginning, it might have they might have had a few missteps, things like with Iron Man 2 or Thor The Dark World, they quickly pivoted away from the things that they, they didn't like and embraced what they did like. But what I think it shows more than anything is what's possible when you have a visionary producing team, not just Kevin Feige, but his, his lieutenants, and how... A, a studio and visionary producers can interface with filmmakers and they can bring filmmakers in and, and let them put their imprintur on something and yet still work together to create uh, something that the studio wants, that the producers want. And it shows what a synergistic relationship can do coupled with a vision when it comes to Hollywood storytelling writ large on the big screen. And I think it shows, like, we've got, everybody wants to emulate the success of the MCU, but they just don't have the ingredients that you need to do that. And that is a group of producers who are also running the studio that have production experience behind them making the same. Remember, Feige made 13 different Marvel movies before the MCU started. Uh, I mean, working in ver as a producer in various capacities on movies, you know, like Elektra and Spider-Man movies and Ghost Rider and Daredevil. And he saw what worked and what didn't work. And that kind of experience was nowhere to be found in Hollywood. He is Kevin Feige is unique and he stayed in this in this realm. And uh, I mean, he showed what was possible with a real visionary producer and, and great filmmakers and a great property that is carefully nurtured and curated over a decade. This kind of success has never been seen, but it's not a fluke. This success was carefully engineered for 10 years and 11 years. And now we're into 12 and 13 years if, if we ever see another Marvel movie, um, if we ever go back to the movie theaters. But I, I think that's the real lesson to take is that, you know, when you have the people that are making movies that are so in tune with their audience and the material that they're bringing to the screen, you can achieve this kind of success. And I say that like, oh, it's just an easy thing to do. It is not. It is unique. But it is a roadmap to how to do successful franchise properties. And there's nobody else who's who's been following it. I don't know if there's anybody else who could follow it. But I, what I think is important is it shows the power of movies and storytelling when you have the right people involved and moving forward if you want to look i mean we all all look banks look at how to how should i give a bank loan to somebody or or how do i become successful or or it, it, you look no further than what they have done uh because it's amazing and i don't think the lessons have been followed from what we what we look at happening with like i don't understand 
why there are not other people in other studios starting small like the MCU did and slowly build up these kinds of things. No, because I, I don't think there's anybody else who knows how to do it. I don't know. I mean, I think, it, and I and for Endgame itself, I rewatched the first half of it, and Endgame it gets it, it the the storytelling is so big and goofy and sci-fi fantasy and time travel and Thanos and I mean it's crazy. But the first half of that movie is all character development. It's there's very little action, and it's people in rooms. It's Captain America talking to Natasha in a room, where Natasha's basically sitting in a chair the whole time and yet you are riveted because you love these characters and for a movie like endgame that's the most financially successful to have so many moments of character development and quiet before the crazy mayhem begins is amazing it's amazing yeah, and uh, here we are one year later still talking about it like it just came out a few weeks ago. We will probably be talking about for some time to come, and we're all very curious to see where the MCU goes post the Endgame world. Guys, question here is for you. What do you see as the significance of Endgame now one year later? And can you actually believe it's actually been a year since that movie came out? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down and out of the way, Let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Tommy Doyle, who writes, Hey, John, did you hear that San Diego Comic-Con got canceled this year? What are your thoughts on this? And will we still be able to get the trailer straight up on YouTube without a presentation? Thanks and keep up the filthy. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, this news broke on Friday. Uh, this is our first John Campia show since that happened. I addressed this a little bit on open mic on the weekend, but I thought Rob and I should talk about it here. So for those of you who did not hear the news, uh, unsurprisingly, Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con, the biggest pop cultural event in the world, has for the first time in a half century been canceled. Now, about a month ago, I thought there was still a chance, unlikely as it was, I still thought there was, there was a chance that perhaps Comic-Con could still happen. I mean, because it was still X number of months away. We'll see how things unfold. Maybe the government will open it back up, blah, blah. There's a chance, maybe unlikely, but a chance. But as days rolled into weeks and the situation uh, didn't improve enough, I think it became clear that in July... While we might be in a place in July, might be in a place in July where we're ready to go into a movie theater with maybe 80 other people and said, I didn't think there was any chance that come July, we would be ready to cram shoulder to shoulder with 180,000 other people uh, for over a four day period. I just didn't know that that was going to be feasible. And from a logistical point of view, I didn't know that there was really going to be enough time to kind of pull everything together once they knew that they were going to be able to do it. And Rob, I'll tell you what, to me, it's really disappointing. I, I get it. I understand it. And I agree with it. I do. I, I agree with the cancellation of Comic-Con at this point. I do. I'm in full agreement. But just because you agree with something and you concur doesn't mean you don't feel crappy about it. And I feel really crappy about this. I'm very saddened and disappointed with the cancellation of Comic-Con, but not necessarily for the reasons that you might think. For me, Comic-Con, like, listen, it's not about Hall H. 
Because I've maybe stepped foot once in Hall H in the last... Well, okay, I've, I've stepped foot twice in Hall H over the last 10 years. Once was to be the moderator for, for a panel on, in Hall H. That's, that's why I was in there. And another time, I just wanted to slip in to watch a presentation on something because it was something that I was involved in. That was it. I never go to Hall H, so I don't care about Hall H. Stupid thing about Comic-Con. Hall H is the most popular thing, but they only have a facility that can literally only hold less than 4% of the people that go to Comic-Con in Hall H. But that's another discussion for another freaking time. Mm. That being said, that being said, the reason I look forward to going to Comic-Con every year, and, and I've mentioned this before, is not for Hall H or the panels or presentations, because guess what? I can sit at home and find out on my Twitter feed three seconds after something is announced at Comic-Con, I'll know about it too. I don't need to be in Hall H to know about it. The reason I like going to Comic-Con is, Rob, I've said this before and I will say it always, there is something spiritually good for the soul right? <laughs> about being in a town in a world filled with as much negativity as we have about being in a town where you have like 150 to 200,000 other fans all together, all smiling, all happy, and all having a good time. Where people high-fiving other strangers <clears throat> because they love their cosplay. People expressing <laughs> their inner fandom that they can't normally do any other time of the year, wherever it is that they live. People being able to turn to one another and cheer together with a complete stranger. People, when you're walking up and down the streets, everybody's smiling and giggling and having fun because they have been planning for six months, eight months, a year, maybe two or three years, saving up and planning, trying to win a lottery and get a freaking hotel room whatever and now they're there and they're living it and they're having the time of their lives and i'll tell you what there is something good for the soul about immersing yourself in an environment like that for three or four days just something magnificent about it that i absolutely love but rob for me it even goes beyond that i think comic-con is incredibly important for pop culture the specifically pop culture fandom, not because of Hall H again, Rob, and I think you might be able to, to relate with me on this, but particularly in a fandom today that can be so toxic and that can be so negative and all that kind of stuff. When Comic-Con comes, Rob, tell me if you, if you felt this too, like in the midst of the DCEU being really divisive, and, you know, the, 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 the fandom became a very divided, angry place. Comic-Con then hit. A great new DCU trailer hit. And, you know, it just this big wave of energy and enthusiasm and happiness. And it just and it transcended San Diego because that positivity and energy that overflowed out from San Diego online. And it was just a big injection of positive hype and energy into the fandom that I think did a lot of good for it. It's like getting your annual flu shot. It, it holds you over for a while. And I just thought, I just think that Comic-Con does something for the fandom of the world. It's just this big injection of hype and excitement and positivity and reminds us all again that first and foremost, we're fans. And then in the midst of all the Star Wars, you know, divisiveness and blah, 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 Comic-Con came. And, and for a while, it was just that big injection of positivity. And so for me, on a personal level, 
I'm really sad that we're not going to Comic-Con because I'm not going to get those few days that are really good for the soul, that's really rejuvenating and energizing and just, just a good, you know, existential experience, if you will. But also, I think it's really unfortunate for the fandom and the pop culture as a whole, even for those who don't go, because I think the fandom needs that positive injection every once in a while. And we're not going to get it this year. Again, I agree with the decision. I understand the decision. They're doing what they need to do. But it doesn't mean I can't feel crappy about it. And I'll tell you what, Rob, I feel pretty crappy about it. But anyway, Rob, you've been going to Comic-Con longer than me. Uh, this is going to be the first time in forever that we're not going to have a Comic-Con in, in longer since I've been alive. Your thoughts on them closing down Comic-Con. Right move, wrong move, and what do you see as the repercussions? Well, first of all, well put. I mean, everything you said about Comic-Con, this would have been my 32nd Comic-Con. Wow. And when I when I moved to Los Angeles to go to college uh, 32 years ago, 1988, I, I went to Comic-Con. You know, it was one of those things I'd always wanted to go. I drove down by myself, you know, because I didn't know anybody who wanted to go in L.A. I hadn't even started school yet. And... The thing about Comic-Con to me is, like you said, it, it was the yearly infusion of my desire to want to continue to create things. You know, you'd go down to Comic-Con and Comic-Con, it, it was nothing like it is when I first went down there. Nothing. It was in a different venue. It wasn't at a convention center yet. But where, how it's become, it's also fueled my professional life. I mean, I met people all the way back in 84, uh, 94 that I went on and made movies with. And and I've had lasting relationships that began at Comic-Con that continue to this day that have extended into the professional realm. And like you said, Comic-Con is just one big joy bubble, <laughs> you know, where you, <laughs> joy walk, bubble. <laughs> you walk down the street and you see people you haven't seen in a year or two. And then you, you ne it's so random. You never know you're going to wind up at a party talking to whomever, you know, you just don't know. And there's been so many great adventures I've had in, at Comic-Con. And what it does is it it re-energizes you, especially your creativity. Anybody that works in the industry or like what we do and, and come on and, and be pundits here. It, it, what you get at Comic-Con in five days if you go to preview night, can, can you can surf that wave for the rest of the year. And especially if you make relationships and, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Now. I think they had no choice but to cancel it this year. Uh, we we don't know. Uh, the the social distancing is done well in terms of of look, it's kept the curve way lower and 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 then the initial projections because people, especially the governors that took action early, like our own mayor and our own governor here in California, we we were one of the first people to adapt stay at home orders. Ours are still going on until May 15th. They might be longer. They might not, depending on what happens. But uh, I don't think you can allow – I mean, we, are, we already know, John. You go to Comic-Con, you come back with con crud. I mean, it's not yeah. like – we can't say that, that – and I mean this with all the love and respect in the world – you know, all of us genre fans, we're not exactly, you know, we're, we're not the most hygienic people. I mean, you and I are. We take showers every day. I wear a cologne, you know, but but it, it's 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 hot and sweaty and exciting and fantastic. And I love it. But it's not exactly the place where you think, wow, this is the most sterile environment I've ever been in. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're going to bars, you're eating, you're shaking hands, you're hugging people. I mean, if there's one place where a rampant viral outbreak could happen. It's Comic-Con. So they, they really didn't have a choice. Now, I'm not saying it's all it would have gone total Andromeda strain and it would have wiped out a whole town. But, you know, it's probably for the best. Why even? It's kids. 
It's families. Yeah. Now you've got four generations. You've got kids, parents, older brothers and sisters, grandparents going to Comic-Con. So I think, it, it, you know. And here's the worst it, part, dude. Here's the worst part. It's people from all over North America uh, and the world and the coming world. there into this little Petri yep. dish. Yep. And then they all take it back with them to wherever it is they're from. So, it, it, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. I'm oh, sorry. I, I, I cut you off there. What were you saying? No, no. I mean, I was just saying it's it's now multi-generational. Like when I started going to Comic-Con, you know, it's it was like lonely dudes in rooms flipping through long boxes of comics. That's, I mean, I, I, I'm making, I'm making a joke. I don't mean to be disparaging, but it's not what it is now. Now it's the whole world. It's, it's boys, it's girls, it's moms, it's dads, it's grandpa and grandpa. It's everybody. And everybody goes Comic-Con, like everything else I talk about, there's a post geek singularity. When I went to Comic-Con, that singularity hadn't happened yet. And now we're all geeks. We're yeah. all nerds. We all love this stuff. That's why Endgame is the highest grossing movie of all time. And everybody goes. And it would be a shame that Comic-Con was ever tainted by something like this. So they just they didn't have a choice, man. They didn't have a choice. And we're going to have to suck it up. But maybe I'll go through my own comic book collection this year that I haven't gone through in like 30 years and finally arrange it. Well, that's why this year we're going to have CampiaCon 2020. It's going to be the biggest pop culture event in the world. I've already put out the word to, to movie studios. Just give me $50,000 and I'll play a two-minute trailer of yours during CampiaCon 2020 uh, to <laughs> fill it all in. Anyway, guys, question is, what do you think about this? Uh, do you understand them having to shut down Comic-Con? Do you wish maybe they would have just hold, held out a little longer to maybe to see if things cleared up? What is, what is it to you? What does Comic-Con mean to you and stuff like that, whether you go to it? Or somebody who doesn't go, what does it mean to you? Anyway, jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Marshall, Marshall Y, who writes, Hey, John, I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright, and he was recently tweeting about writing the sequel to Baby Driver. Driver is personally my favorite film of his, but what would you and Rob say is his best movie? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for, for sending that in, man. And yes, Baby Driver was fantastic. I loved that movie. And I'm kind of uh, bewildered as to why it's taking this long to get a sequel out. It's not an expensive movie to make. It made decent amount of little money. Everybody really enjoyed it. It was both engaging and exciting all at the same time. You got Lily James, damn it, and that's all you need. <laughs> anyway, um, so I've, I've just never understood. So yeah, Edgar just lately has been tweeting even more about his writing the movie, and hopefully that comes about sooner rather than later. So why not, in the midst of that, talk about, since Edgar's talking about Baby Driver 2, why don't we talk about it for a second here? But what is our favorite Edgar Wright film? Because Rob, mm. Edgar Wright... And, you know, listen, and it's hard to think about Edgar Wright without also thinking Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, like yeah. that triumvirate of dudes has just made some of the most joyous pop culture, geek culture stuff there is. So I'll tell you what, three movies in particular um, come to mind, although, you know, a lot of friends of mine will always say World's End. There are there are a couple of friends of mine, Rob, that like World's End is like it like that is peak. Uh, Edgar Wright, right? That kind of that whole uh, 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 genre of stuff there. But for me, there are three movies in particular that come to mind when I think of Edgar Wright. One of which is Scott Pilgrim versus the World, 
which is a graphic novel that I would have told you is unfilmable. Like, like when so when I heard that Edgar Wright was taking a crack at Scott Pilgrim, I'm like, how do you make that into a movie? Like, I just have no idea. That thing is so bonkers. How do you make it into a movie? He made it into a movie and he crushed it. He crushed it. Another one, of course, is the aforementioned Baby Driver. You know, it was a very different kind of movie for Edgar Wright. And we it was it was separate from all the other types of stuff we've seen him do. And I think there was a real curiosity with a lot of us wondering, how's Edgar going to do with a movie like this? Answer, he crushed it uh, and made it fun and exciting and engaging and all that kind of stuff. But Rob, to me, with all due respect to my buddies who love World's End and all my friends who love Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver, to me, it's it's nothing's finer than Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, to me, was, as they defined it, was the first rom-com zom. It was a romantic comedy with zombies. And it was really the first of its type. And it became a very influential film as well, dude. When you go back and see a lot of horror, the way that movie by itself has influenced and kind of, you know, exerted a lot of, uh, let's say, homages to this movie in horror movies and the horror genre as a whole that's come after it. It wasn't just a fun little bubble of a film. It became a really influential little film. And it certainly announced with huge trumpets the arrival of Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost. There were people who knew who they were already because of their show. But I think this was their big introduction to the world. So, Rob, when I look at Edgar Wright, I think of those three films. Scott Pilgrim, I think of Baby Driver. But first and foremost, I think Shaun of the Dead. When you look at the filmography and the career of Edgar Wright, what film stands out to you the most? Well, okay, I'm I'm going to have to agree with you utterly because Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite. The original Romero Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite movies of all time and certainly one of my favorite horror films of all time. Now, what I loved about Shaun of the Dead, like I don't like it when when there's parodies and send ups of my favorite things usually. So I went into Shaun of the Dead ready to be pissed off (laughs) and and when i watched it shawn of the dead is a legitimate straight up horror film and and it's dealing with the same i mean it's totally respectful of romero's films but it's like these two jablonskis these working class guys in london their experience of the zombie outbreak i mean i was like that could happen like like I would imagine <laughs> so it so it didn't disrespect or it didn't annoy me and it certainly didn't it still respected the legacy of of Romero's holy trilogy of Night of the Living Dead Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead I know he's made Land of the Dead and Survival of the Dead but those three films and and it was you know Simon Pegg and Nick Frost they were so good in that movie and everybody else was so good in the film and and it was it still was a rom-com, but it was a straight-up horror film, survival horror. It was really great. So it, that is my favorite uh, Edgar Wright movie. But I think his entire Cornetto trilogy, Hot Fuzz, I think is amazing, and it doesn't get the credit it deserves. I think it's hilarious. Timothy Dalton does a great job. Simon Dalton's Pegg's, so good in that. He's so good. And, and, and Simon Pegg coming back playing this deadpan Uber cop is awesome. You know, Nick Frost and then and World's End is a, a really interesting. I mean, people talk about film trilogies and while they're not directly related, he does call them his Cornetto trilogy. And I, I think that's an ice cream thing. And, it is. and I I love them. Uh, those are my favorite movies. Now, I have to tell you, when I first saw Baby Driver, I I, I appreciated the craft, but I'm like this it, it annoyed me. 
I'm like, this movie really? is trying so hard to be, look at how cool I am. And hey, I'm going to dance around the streets and listen to music. That was the first time I saw it. Then I saw it again. It was a, a movie kind of like The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I mm. really didn't like the first time I saw it. But as this, my second viewing, it felt like a totally different movie. I don't know if I was just in a sour mood when I first saw it or you know, was looking down my nose at this movie. But I now I find Baby Driver to be delightful and right up there with my favorite Edgar Wright trilogy. And uh, I can't wait to see a second one. Have and I mentioned I'm that Lily James is in that movie. Dude, just, just I know. <laughs> I, and not only that, I, I dare say, I mean, Cinderella was peak <sighs> Lily James. But that yeah. was fantasy Lily James. Baby Driver is, I want to go to that diner and meet Lily James, Lily James. She was amazing in that movie. And, yeah. I mean, you know, I there's something about her. Like, I've always been a face person when it comes to women. I, I love faces, female faces. Her face, like whether she's in Yesterday or Cinderella or Baby Driver, I could look at her face talking endlessly for the rest of my life. I, I just don't know what it is. She's got this ethereal, almost angelic quality. She almost doesn't look of this earth. She just looks like she just descended from the heavens and uh, never more so than in Baby Driver. I yep, want to go to right that there. Listen, diner, John. I say in Hollywood, look, there are some people that are just unfairly like some of the most men or women that just like beautiful, like like the attractiveness is just stupid. Whether you're talking about guys like a Brad Pitt or a Javier Bardem or women like Margot Robbie, but Lily James has got to be on that list, too. But and on top of that, she's uber talented. Anyway, guys, question here for you is, you know what? But even before I got I got to show this, Rob, I got to show this. So speaking of Shaun of the Dead, I just decided to pull this out for fun. I might have shown this one picture before, but. So I was actually lucky enough that the very first screening of Shaun of the Dead in North America was in Toronto. And it was a, kind of like a semi-private screening. And I was doing my website at the time called The Movie Blog. And a couple of us from the they invited a couple of us from the movie blog to go and be there because because our website had kind of been championing this film that hadn't played in North America yet. So they invited us to be there. Take a look at this picture. On the left is, this is 16 years ago. Wow. On the left, 16 years ago. Look at those two young guys. Uh, that was the night that we did the first screening of Shaun of the Dead. And that was in Toronto. They had just flown in. We went out for drinks afterwards and all that kind of stuff. The picture beside it was like almost 10 years later uh, when I got to do, I was lucky enough, I got invited to go and do uh, uh be the moderator for the Q&A after the screening of uh, of World's End. So it was just kind of funny. I just wanted to show that picture because I thought that was funny, like one and then almost a decade later. And uh, I look worse and Edgar looks better. I don't know how that works. But yeah, the older picture uh, to the newer picture, I look worse. Edgar looks better. So that seems a little bit unfair. Anyway, the question here is, guys, for you. What do you think? is the best film that Edgar Wright has done. As we all are excited and look forward to him doing more stuff, including Baby Driver 2, what do you think is the best film he's done? All right, guys. 
with all that down and out of the way, we're going to head into our live questions here in just a second. By the way, there's two different ways to send in live questions. Number one is the best way. And by the way, if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can do this as well. Just simply go over to www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You can also see that link in the description of this video or podcast. You can go there anytime 24-7 and send in a tip to support the channel and also a question to be read during the live questions part. Or if you're watching the video right now, you also have the option of just using Super Chat and you can do that. And Robert and I are going to get to those live questions in just a second. But before we do... We're going to take a short break. Uh, give us a couple of minutes to rest the vocal cords, stretch our legs, refill our drinks, and uh, we'll be right back. And in the meantime, guys, since we've talked about Comic-Con and we've talked about Edgar Wright and World's End, um, I thought I would do a little bit of a throwback. Here is a video from a number of years ago of uh, me at Comic-Con talking to Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost with a certain little photo bomber that decided to come in and participate at the same time at Comic-Con a few years ago talking about Worlds and take a look at this and we will be right back. Listen, there's something, just the only word for it is magic that happens when the three of you guys do a film together. What is it that is so unique about those films where the three of you are working together that audiences just seem to latch onto so much? I think, you know, the three of us are all fans, first and foremost, of, of, of other stuff. And I, I, maybe we kind of understand what it feels like to be a fan. And we write from a, ver from a point of view of truth always and we try and be as honest as we can. We don't try and please anybody but ourselves, but, but with the assumption that we have friends out there who'll get it as well. We never try and underestimate the audience. We never think of them as being anything but smart. You know, I think the minute you start being dumb, the audiences even subconsciously feel a bit, you know, shortchanged. And the audiences aren't dumb. Audiences are, uh, are literate and smart, and they they get shit. Even sort of multiplex crowds, they get stuff, and they get, you know, that's why Avengers was so popular because it had an edge of cool and cleverness to it, you know, which people love. So there there is no there is no sort of fruit in in, in dumbing yourself down or underestimating your audience. You know, always be the person that watches your films, I think. When we look at, uh, at the films that you guys have done together before, we we're, North American audiences are kind of used to seeing Simon is kind of the more straight-laced guy, yeah. use more as the wild card. What was it like switching those spots a little bit for you in this one? Um, I was a lot of fun, you know? I think it was important. I don't want people to get bored of, oh, there's those guys doing that again, you know? Uh, I think it would be a bit upsetting, you know? Uh, and also, the fact of the matter is we're, we're both actors. So any chance you get to do something which isn't of type is a is a is a, a treat, you know. And to be kind of um, you know uh, an angry stiff was uh, is that rude? Does that, does that sound rude here? Because that would be rude at home. That works. To be an angry you know an ang angry guy who has an atomic bomb inside him essentially <laughs> is a, a treat to play, and I think probably more like myself. Here's the thing, we first met about 10 years ago when you just got off the plane in Toronto to show, I think it was the first North American screening of Shaun of the Dead. Nine years ago. Nine, you're right, nine years ago. Yeah. And after, having drinks afterwards, you said, you know, this is really great. It'll probably be the last time you'll ever see us, though. Now here we are almost 10 years later, after Hot Fuzz and, and Scott Pilgrim and Star Trek and Paul and all that kind of stuff. How has this experience changed for the three of you guys now that you are successful filmmakers? I don't know, you know, I... Um Hi. Hi. Sorry. Hi. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing See you, man. I'll be there. Stefan! Stefan! I like getting Bill Hader bombed. And, uh... <laughs> Stefan! No, um... It was really nice today doing our whole H panel. 
because I realized that even though I had been to Comic-Con like six times, it was the first time that me and Simon and Nick had been on stage together. Because for wow. Shaun of the Dead, like, it was just me and Simon. Hot Fuzz, it was just me and Nick. And this is the first time the three of us have been on stage. It feels like we always come here, but the three of us have never been on stage together before. And so actually, you know, having done Hall H as my fourth time doing Hall H, I felt extremely relaxed up there just because I'm with my best friends and, you know, it's just fun. And I hope that kind of like is infectious with the audience. All right, guys, uh, that was, again, from a number of years ago. But since we were talking about Edgar Wright and talking about Comic-Con, I thought I'd throw that in there, which is a, a little uh, uh, hater uh, kind of dropping on that. So that was one of my fun memories. So I just thought I'd share that instead of the countdown clock with you guys. All right, though, with all that down, let's start getting into your live questions. Let's start firing through these things here. We're going to start things off with Willow, who writes, I never played Animal Crossing. This weekend, I did a little bit of Animal Crossing live streaming, which is actually a lot of fun uh, before. But this game really reminds me of a cuter version of RuneScape. Actually, that's not a bad comparison. I can't count how many hours I must have spent catching lobsters on that game. Here's the funny thing. Uh, people look at me funny when I make this comparison, but then they think about it and they go, oh, yeah, it kind of is like that. Animal Crossing is actually a lot like uh, World of Warcraft. I mean, you're, you're gathering resources, not World of Warcraft, but Warcraft. Uh, you're gathering resources, you get little mini quests you have to do, all this kind of stuff to kind of build yourself up or build up your own. It's a lot like that, and we had a lot of fun, so I'm glad you joined us for that, Willow. Uh, Knacker the Baker writes, Oh, Nathan the Baker actually ordered uh, Sons of Filthy t-shirts. Well, thank you for that, Knacker, which, by the way, you can get at the johncampiashow.com slash shop. You can go and find that there now. A little bit of a plug. All right, an anonymous viewer writes, I should clarify something. I only asked if I could borrow 2,000 bells because my shop had literally just closed for the night and I couldn't sell my remaining fish. I was desperate. I never expected to give me so much, but I will donate the rest. So what this is, is during our live stream, uh, one of our viewers wrote and said, really nice story about the fan community because he was playing Animal Crossing as well and he's found him sort of showed her some resources. So he got onto a forum with the fan community and said, oh man, I'm short X number. And some random guy he didn't know just came and gave him like 10,000, like 10 million bells. That's dollars in the game universe. And I just thought it was a really cool story about the fan community supporting each other. But anyway, thanks for sharing that anonymous. All right, Randall McMurphy writes, I just watched the game starring Michael Douglas and I love it overall, but Douglas's character reaction at the end frustrated me. I wouldn't take it all as lightly as he took it. Um, Rob, I know you've seen the game with Michael Douglas. I actually thought it was a pretty good, like every individual would react differently uh, to a situation like that. I thought the way he reacted to it was actually pretty consistent with this character, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Look, you might you might uh, be surprised to know, John, that I have the game on Blu-ray. I'm shocked. And, uh, I, I'm totally I, shocked. I, I quite enjoy the movie, but I think the whole movie is there's a little bit of movie or nightmare logic that goes into it. And I think by the end of the film, I think he does act consistent to his character because he's shown as being this incredibly buttoned up, aloof man that has no emotion real emotion in his life and what happens to him his whole life is taken apart and his whole world that he's spent this meticulous he's meticulously crafted this this hermetically sealed world that he lives in it's all stripped away from him and that's what the movie's about metaphorically and and his life is over literally over by the end of the movie and then he has a rebirth and in the in the if you look at the film and take it literally it, it is kind of wacky but if you go with the film, I think at the end, it's, it's, I love it. You know, 
And I think yeah. it's, it's David Fincher doing a great, great job. Yeah, I love that too. All right, Diamond Dogs Puppy writes, Morning, John. Wipe away two of the following wrestlers' careers away forever. Number one, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Number two, Triple H. Number three, The Undertaker. Number four, HBK. That's Shawn Michaels. Number five, The Rock. Number six, Y2J. That's Chris Jericho. Have a great day. Okay, if you're saying we just wipe away their wrestling careers, but everything else stays the same, but everything else stays the same, all right, then it makes it a little bit easier. I take away The Rock, and I take away Triple H even though Triple H is my all-time favorite wrestler. The reason I take them away is because The Rock is still The Rock. Like, if, if you're saying just take just take away the wrestling career, but everything else stays the same, then The Rock is still one of the biggest movie stars in the world. We still get to enjoy him on that level and all that kind of stuff. Triple H is still one of the most influential, important guys in wrestling, even without wrestling himself. So I would say those are the two I take away if everything else stays exactly the same. So that's how I would do that, Diamond. All right, Amir writes... Finally watched Battlestar Galactica, and I thought it was okay. I give it a 7 out of 10. It had an amazing start and had me hooked, but I thought it got a bit weaker after Season 2, and Season 4 was the weakest. The religious stuff got a bit too much in the end, in my opinion. I 1,000% disagree. The religious stuff was a part, it was ingrained in the mythology of that show, and it was the very underpinning of the mythology of that show. It's meant to be a much deeper show and that kind of, it's existential in many ways. And I'll tell you what, I thought the show just got better and better. Now, did I love the finale? Did I love the finale of Battlestar Galactica? No, I didn't think it was the strongest finale. But I liked the finale, but it was not the strongest finale, agreed. But some of their best stuff came after. Some of the best stuff is in season three. Um, yeah. But, like, I think uh, um, Second ex- second Exodus is, like, the greatest episode of television history. It, to me, single greatest episode of television history is the second Exodus. Um, but anyway, I, it is my all-time number one favorite show. But as in all entertainment, it's all subjective. Just because I like it that much doesn't mean you're going to like it that much. And that doesn't mean your opinion is any more or less valid than mine. But I, to me, it's the greatest television show of all time. But that's just me. Rob, I know you're a Battlestar Galactica guy. What, what would you say to all that? Oh, I'm a I'm a huge fan, and one of the things about the show that I really loved that they 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 explored was the idea that the Cylons were monotheists and the human beings were polytheists. You know, they had their pantheon of gods, and yet it was the Cylons that believed in the the one true God. And I love the fact that the one character in Battlestar Galactica that you never see, call it a higher power, call it God, but that character is there. I mean, to the point where conjuring up a Starbucks and her own brand new Viper at one point, I, and there is there is somebody leading them on this journey. I think the religious aspects of it are fascinating, and and are definitely baked into the show from the very beginning. And I do think, like you said, season three, it just the show changes. You know, it alters. My only time when I thought the show faltered, I thought it repeated some things in the fourth season. You know, again, the 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 Gata going up against Adama and trying to have a mutiny along with Tom Zarek. I was like, come on, man. But I, I love the last, the three-hour finale, you know, even Daybreak when they get to Earth. I cried, man. When Starbuck disappears when she's talking to Apollo on that grassy knoll on Earth, I get tears. I watch that every time, how she's just gone not in a burst of energy she's just gone and it's and it's so moving and adama and the president and oh rosalind man dude i love that show dude you know what one of the biggest wtf moments for me in television history 
And nobody will think, will, will guess what I'm about to say, but it was in Battlestar Galactica, the revelation of all along the watchtower. Dude, like that to me was like, wait, what the hell is happening? Like, with the, like, and only those of you who have seen the show know what I'm talking about. But when they reveal all along what that this little ditty was all along the watchtower, I'm like, what? Wait a minute, what? And I just right. like freaked out. I just totally freaked out. It was so good. Okay, anyway, sorry, we got to keep moving on. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right, uh, John's number one fan writes. For everyone who owns a Roku device, uh, there's a great channel called B-Movie TV. Ooh, I'm a big Roku guy, so this is intriguing. Uh, non-stop streaming B-Movies, shorts, documentaries, and OG programming. Watch the, the, the Crater Lake Monster on Sunday. John and Rob <laughs> recommendations. Um, well, I'll tell you what. I am a big Roku guy. Uh, that sounds great. I'm going to definitely go and look for that channel. Uh, I really like Pluto TV, which is a little bit of a cheat because Pluto TV is actually like 80 channels. So Pluto right. TV is like its own television network, but it's totally free. And they got a lot of cool little channels on there, like including sci-fi stuff, action sports. Um, one of my favorites is that they've got a 24 um, seven uh, rolling uh, poker channel, which is, I mean, just again, little things like that, right? I'm actually a big fan of the Pluto TV app. Of course, there's the big major ones, Disney plus and stuff like that. But uh, out of the smaller ones, I go Pluto TV. Rob, I, I know you have your streaming stuff. Do you have a particular favorite streaming app or streaming? streaming channel that people should check out well no but but you know it's funny about pluto because they've been showing like they've got space 1999 yeah you know? <laughs> and i i just i'm i'm loving that uh it, that's uh, delving into that and just seeing the the craziness out there what i love it it would stuff you're not expecting once you go down that route you know you i love i love shutter I don't know if you does that count? Does Shutter count? Shutter I, totally counts. I dude, Shutter is awesome. I, I if you're a horror fan, I can't get enough Shutter. There's uh, it's so great. All right, let's move on. Next here. Um, David Tapia writes, I'm a part of AMC A-List fan group, and there was a poll showing people overwhelmingly wanted AMC to open theaters per state instead of waiting for all states to be open. What is your thoughts and what kind of movies could they show if they go per state? All right. Well, I mean, it, on the one hand, it all depends. If you wanted to open the theaters again with new movies then you can't do that unless you open them all at the same time because studios aren't going to want to roll out their movies probably Limited markets, limited markets, limited markets. I don't think they'd want to do that. But if you reopen the theaters the way we think they're going to reopen them, which is reopen them and start off with some big catalog movies, Avengers, Avatar, um, maybe Back to the Future. You know, we, we, if you open it up with, again, just with catalog movies, not a lot of people will go, but It'll help just get people back into the flow of having the theaters open again, people going back again, give the new movies a chance to market and all that kind of stuff. And if you do it that way, then opening them up slowly and gradually in different states becomes more of a possibility. Now, again, your states need to be not freaking idiots and opening up too soon, but... But, you know, there will be some states that will be in a place that they're more ready to be open earlier than others. And if you do it that way and the theaters roll out that way, I think that's possible. Rob, what do you think about that? I, I think so, too. I, I, I completely agree. And again, it, it, it's going to require uh, careful and measured uh, 
responsible rollouts and and like everything else. But I look, I'm optimistic about all of this, John. I I it, this too will pass, and it just requires, or it's gonna it's gonna be up to how it's done. How is it all approached? I agree. All right, Christian thirty four writes, "Hey, John and Rob, hope all is well." So. If you had to choose, what is your favorite Beverly Hills Cop 1 or Midnight Run? Ooh, that's a good comparison. Both oh. directed by Martin uh, Martin Brest. I like Beverly Hills Cop, but I love Midnight Run. Uh, Indiro and Groden is gold, and Elfman's score is great. Stay safe. Hey, listen, that is a uh, you great choice. Excellent comparison. I have to lean. I have a... I got to lean towards Beverly Hills Cop 1 myself, but that's that's just me. Rob, I got a feeling you're going to go Midnight Run. Am I right or am I wrong? No, you know, it's it's to me that's like a Sophie's choice, but I love Beverly Hills Cop. I love Beverly Hills Cop. I think it's a great action film. It, it it's it's that whole opening truck chase is amazing. The 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 with Eddie Murphy swinging in the back of the truck. Midnight Run is is more of a character-based movie, but it just in terms of sheer entertainment value, I love Beverly Hills Cop. Ah, uh, I agree. I agree. All right, next up here. Uh, Michael Jones sends in a $50 tip. Thank you, Michael, for supporting the channel on that level. And if there's a question in here, not only will we answer it now, it'll get answered in its own standalone video here in the next week or two. All right, Michael writes. Hey, John, uh, were you or Robert, did you or Robert have a chance to look at Deadline's top 20 most profitable movies of 2019? They don't seem to be using box office to figure to figure this. Thanks. No, I have not. I have not seen the article. Um, I don't know how you figure that without taking into account its income. Uh, but okay. Uh, but I will go. If it sounds like an interesting article. I will go check that out. Rob, have you had a chance to see that article on Deadline? Yeah, they do a multiples article series about the top, the most valuable films of the year. And it's fascinating to watch or to watch, to read. Uh, I think it's great analysis about how the business works and how profitable movies are. Uh, I just read the one yesterday on Us, on Jordan Peele's Us. But it's, I, I look, I read Deadline every day, and I think everybody should if you're interested in the film business. They're great right. articles. So no, Michael, I haven't had a chance to read that yet, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to do your question as its own standalone video in the next couple of weeks, and I will make sure I read that article beforehand, and I will give you my thoughts at the time. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, dude. I appreciate it. And again, thank you for supporting the channel on that level, man. We all appreciate that here. All right, Casinema Reviews writes, one of two. I sent this question in for the charity stream, and Rob answered it in the companion video, but I still wanted to get your thoughts on it. Recently on a podcast, one of the editors of The Force Awakens and Star Wars Rise of Skywalker turned out to be one of those people who think that The Force Awakens uh, undid what The Force Awakens set up. One of those people who thinks that The Force Awakens undid what The Force Awakens set up. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you probably meant mean The Last Jedi. Uh, And apparently they edited parts of The Rise of Skywalker on their phone. Uh, Both explain a lot, including but not limited to the cynical feeling of the way they retconned The Last Jedi. Ugh. Um, I I, I don't know what to say, but the uh, an editor isn't the director. An editor isn't the screenwriter. So, I, I mean, I don't know. Listen. One of the interesting things is J.J. made it pretty clear there really wasn't anything that The Last Jedi retconned about The Force Awakens. There were things that The Rise of Skywalker retconned about both of the previous movies. I mean, that was very, very clear. But to listen to J.J. Abrams himself, there was really nothing retconned. I mean, J.J. Has himself has said that um, Ryan Johnson did some things differently in the in The Last Jedi than he would have done it. 
But he also said there was no direct contradiction of whatever of the things he did in The Force Awakens. So, I mean, it really all depends. So, so that I see. No, I, I disagree. The editor was just another person involved in the process. They saw it a certain way. That's great. But I take JJ's word more of it than anything else. Rob, did you have a chance to see that? And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I just don't believe that that's the case. I mean, especially after reading that Duel of the Fates script. I mean, there was synergy. And, uh, you know, JJ Abrams left the Star Wars franchise in sort of when you have Luke on Achto, what are you going to do with that? I mean, a lot of people objected. The biggest objection to Last Jedi is, I think, how the character of Luke is portrayed. But Ryan Johnson didn't do that. That was J.J. Abrams. And, you know, he leaves Luke kind of in this cliffhanger position like, why is Luke here? And, and I think Ryan Johnson, after being given that, he did the best he could. He took that, ran with it, and turned it into something I found particularly interesting. So... I don't think that he undid what was there, The Force Awakens. I think he did what he what he was given to work with. He used it. I agree. All right. Uh, next up, Murray Reich writes, I was thinking to myself, imagine this whole virus started when video stores were around and they were shut down, plus internet connection was only dial-up and there were only flip phones and using phone booths probably got, were not a good idea. What would we have done? A uh, lot of magazine porn is the only thing I can possibly imagine. No, I, I it's funny because Ann and I, Rob, had this conversation the other day about we right now for this whole lockdown, we were talking about the lockdown. We live in the easiest time ever for this <laughs> lockdown to be. Now, again, I, I'm not saying that to downplay the real legit hardships that this is causing for an awful lot of people. Not at all. But those incredible hardships would have been the same in other eras as well. So I'm just saying for the vast majority of us that we're only inconvenienced by this. There, there are a lot of people out there who are being devastated by this, but for those of us who are in the situation that we are just being really inconvenienced by it, um, there's never been a better time for it to happen. We have high-speed internet. We have streaming. We have global telecommunication devices in our pockets that we can pick up and face up. I can see my mom's face if I want to right now. I can just beep and just see my mom's face and talk to her. I can watch any movie, almost any movie that's ever been created, blah, blah, blah. You know, last night, Rob, me and my friends, we, we, we played, you know, we played Jackbox games last night. We just got we got a group of about 10 of us online and we just opened up Zoom, opened up Jackbox. We played about four hours of Jackbox games, hung out, you know, ate some snacks and just had a good time. It's just we're very lucky. Dude, I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine what this past month and a bit would have been like with no access to the movies we want to watch. Oh, with no like Bill. I mean, it would have been nuts. I don't know. What do you think would have happened? Dude, it, like you said, I delivered on on Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Well, we, Dave Parker and I, delivered 390 minutes of special features edited video for our movie, The Hills Run Red, that's coming out on Blu-ray. The movie's only 81 minutes long. We delivered six and a half hours of special features. We made them all pretty much in the last month. Now, if we didn't have this time, and it's the time and the technology... Like, like, not only have you and I been broadcasting, but the equipment we have, we can edit. We can play video games via Zoom or play board games via Zoom. I mean, the, the technology we have is incredible. 
And I, I, I was just thinking, like, over the weekend, the final deliveries were being made. And sometimes it would take, like, four or six hours to upload these pieces to this portal and these different places they had to go. But I'm like, I'm in my garage with unbelievable technology, you know. And over the over the last week, how many shows have we done? I did two companion videos for you. I did whining about movies with Elizabeth. I mean, we're broadcasting to the world. I'm streaming devs. I'm what? I mean, it's it's incredible the time that we live in and the technology. I talk to my mom on the on my iPhone. I could FaceTime her. It's just unbelievable. And I realized, you know what? If I had to stay here for the next ten years, in my house here, eh, it wouldn't be so bad. And there are just other eras that that wouldn't have been the case. <laughs> that I know, dude. Would not I mean, have been the case. Ten years ago, it wouldn't have been the case. I mean, no, come I on. I agree. All right, let's move on here. Next up is Mr. Hank Dunn, who writes, Morning, John and Co. Unpopular opinion, but I think Die Hard 3 is the best action movie of all time. What do you guys think of the movie? It is my favorite Die Hard movie. And, and I that is also an unpopular opinion. I love that movie. Jeremy Irons, good Lord. Jeremy Irons in that movie is so freaking awesome i'm not saying he's better than his his movie brother uh in the first but i I mean i love that the chemistry between bruce willis and samuel jackson was incredible the whole even the puzzle solving thing okay wait a minute i gotta pour this much water and all of it worked together in such a great fluid wonderful way i love that movie dude i love that Uh, to me the greatest action movie of all time is still uh true lies i love that one rob if you had to throw in there just throw in your two cents worth here what's the greatest action film of all time oh my god i think the road warrior is the greatest action film that's a great one by the way i love die hard i I love die hard with a vengeance i really do uh, the elevator scene, like, oh, anyway. Okay, uh, uh, Gatlin Winter writes, I watched Bambi recently, and now I know why when Bambi gets mentioned, in the, uh, gets mentioned, the first thing that comes to people's mind is Bambi's mother getting shot because the rest is forgettable and boring. Um, I, uh, listen, it's true. When you do think about Bambi, most people start and end their conversations with Bambi's mom. But Thumper is adorable. Come on. It's still a joyous little movie. I like Bambi, even post that. But you're right. That is it. That's the peak of the movie. That's the that's the emotional oomph of the movie is right there. But I think it's I think it's all right, Galen. But hey, listen, not every movie's for everybody, dude. And if it didn't work for you, it didn't work for you. That's cool. But I think it's a charming little film, even after Bambi's mom. All right, Galen Winter also writes: Hercules and Mulan are the best movie uh, Disney movies ever made. Off the top of your head, what is your favorite Disney movie ever? I gotta tell you, neither of those are even in my top six, seven, or eight. To be honest with you, I like Mulan. Um, I do. I, I like it. I, I've watched it many times, the animated film, and I like the Hercules movie. I do. But to me, it starts and ends like: How can you not have? The, the first animated film in history to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, Beauty and the Beast. That thing is just all-time classic. Uh, uh, Robin Williams' Aladdin. Um, but for me, it starts and ends with Lion King. Um, the original animated Lion King, to me, is the greatest animated film of all time. Uh, and that's, that's my particular take. Rob, what would you say the greatest Disney animated film ever? I, I, my favorite is Fantasia. You know, oh wow! Uh, I know my favorite is Fantasia. It's I know it's a different kind of a thing, but I, I was blown away by it. Uh, it instilled a love of classical music and uh, the idea that animation could do what that film did. 
I thought was amazing. I know it's old school, but uh, I, I, it's it is it's my favorite. All right. Next up here, we've got Midnight Man Man who writes one of two confession. I went to see an Irishman screening and was th- and was thir- through enjoying it. You probably meant thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it until I kept noticing the wrinkles of De Niro's eyes. I ended up leaving because of how distracting the de-aging was. Uh, Frankly, I love De Niro and really wanted to enjoy it, but I somehow just couldn't see them as younger men despite how well the de-aging was done. I mean, listen, first of all, don't apologize for, look, we all have things that will distract us or delight us or whatever from movies that are different and unique from everybody else. And if there was something in that movie which, quite frankly, didn't bother me at all, but if there was something in that movie that just kept picking at your brain and wouldn't let you enjoy it, then, hey, that that's that was your experience. And you make no apologies for that. For me, um, bad makeup or bad costuming, my mind just adjusts to it and just goes, OK, that's what this is. And then I move on and then I move forward with it and it's perfectly fine. But for other people, it's different. There are some things that are perfectly fine for other people that to me would stick in my head and just be like a buzzing fly in my ear if it if it didn't get out of there. So, yeah, I can see that. I mean, the de-aging was a little wonky, but I knew what they were. My brain adjusted to it. I knew what it was they were going for, and it allowed me to just enjoy the movie for what it was. An overly too long movie, but still enjoy the movie for what it was. Rob, just quickly, uh, your thoughts on the de- I don't think we ever specifically talked about the de-aging stuff in the film, but did it stand out to you as a positive, as a negative? What were your th- quick thoughts on that? Well, you know, look, I think they've come a long way with de-aging since, oh, I don't know, Tron Legacy. And um, I, I, I'm i fascinated by how we've seen the incredible in, uh, increases or or what do, we, what do we call them increases? Refinements, say, in the technology over the years. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty amazed by it all, to be honest. I mean, I and it just keeps getting better and better and better. All right. Next up, Cody Cord writes, Hi, guys. I'm facing my fears, Rob. I'm going to watch Lord of the Rings spider part for the third movie uh, in the third movie. By the way, it's an amazing trilogy. Also recommendations. Bernie Mac uh, movie. Guess who? I do like Guess Who, as a matter of fact. Jason Bateman in The Gift, which is great, directed by... uh, uh, Uncle Joe Edgerton, J- Joel Edgerton, uh, who directed that, and Guy Ritchie movie Uncle Revolver. <laughs> he was his Uncle Owen. I, I know, uh, I know. I always forget that. <laughs> uh, and a Guy Ritchie movie Revolver. I'm I'm not a big uh, Revolver, even though I'm a huge Guy Ritchie dude. Listen, then you, C- Cody, and Aaron Cummings have to watch a movie together because even when I took you guys heard me tell the story, even when I took Aaron Cummings to go see Spider Man into the Spider Verse. There's a quick scene with the animated spider. Just a little animated spider. I thought she was going to die. And I thought I was going to die because she grabbed me like by the throat and the arm. It's like, ah! Like I, 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 she told me she was scared of spiders. I've never seen anybody as petrified as spiders that even when it's an animated spider on screen, dude. So I got to see if I can get Cody, you and Aaron Cummings to watch that together because that would be a fun thing to watch. Um, All right. Let's see here. What's up next? Ryan Loner writes, um, does Dave Filoni just really hate Mace Window for some reason? Every time he shows up in Clone Wars, he's a huge asshole, caring nothing about the clones' lives and refusing to give reparations for collateral damage because it was the will of the Force. I can't comment on that because I don't. I certainly haven't watched any of the new stuff, uh, and it's been a while since I've watched 
the the original Clone Wars series, the first six seasons. It's been a while since there, but I guess yeah, they've always they always did kind of portray him as a bit of a dick. Listen, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean though. And by the way, just full disclosure, I'm not a fan of Clone Wars personally, but just because a storyteller in order to tell their story needs certain characters to do certain things that doesn't mean they hate that character it just means that to tell their story uh, and to tell the story that he wanted to tell it just means Dave Filoni required that the Mace Windu character do and say certain things to set up other things in the story he wants to tell for other characters Um, and no it doesn't necessarily mean he hates the character I mean, I don't know, maybe he hates the character. I don't know him, but I don't think that in and of itself necessarily means he hates the character. Um, so, but again, I'm I'm not the best person to give you my insight on that because I haven't watched the new stuff other than season one or episode one, which I didn't think was very good. But um, but that's my thoughts on that, Ryan. That's just my thoughts on that. All right. Who would have thought I'd be the one sitting here defending Clone Wars? But I defend Clone Wars in this point. All right. Jaron Morris writes, Hey, John, happy 420. I'm celebrating this special day with a joint uh, doing work from home. Hope you and Anne are well blessed and God bless you and your loved ones. Also, I really want a Valentina Shashenko versus Amanda Nunez 3. That's the trilogy that needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, you are talking about the two most devastating female warriors on the planet i mean valentina is the stuff of nightmares uh like right now amanda nunez and i'm not in it by the way i'm not an amanda nunez fan i'm not an amanda nunez fan but she is the baddest woman walking the planet right now like she's scary like when you watch her fight against chris cyborg and the way she just chris cyborg who some people mistakenly thought for a long time was like the baddest woman on the planet the way amanda nunez just ripped her to pieces like ragdolled her like owned her. it was it was like it was like an adult fighting a child it was crazy she is but valentina will haunt your nightmares and she is lethal and the fights that they have had already have been the only time either one of those two have been truly, truly challenged. Now, Amanda's up 2-0, but I'm telling you what, I would love to see a third fight. It's just a matter, I don't know what weight class they do it at and all that kind of stuff, but, whew, man, I'm down. I I want to see JJ and uh, Lee run back their fight because that was one of the greatest fights in combat sports history. That Joanna Jacek fight uh, versus Lee, the champion, that was one of the, not just female fights, one of the greatest fights in combat sports history was that fight. If you haven't seen it, see if you can find a run back of it on YouTube or something. That's when I want to see them run back again, whenever they get around to having mixed martial arts again. Uh, Midnight Madman writes, <laughs> uh, what is the difference between lore bending and lore breaking in storytelling? Is there a fine line where bold becomes bad? Example, J.J. Abrams' mystery box. I'll tell you what, there's, there's no such thing for either. You can bend lore and you can break lore and it can be great. You can slightly bend lore, and it's terrible. There's no such thing. Rob, one of the things I learned very early when I started talking to uh, directors and filmmakers and stuff like that is there should be no sacred cows. When it comes to creativity and, and telling stories, there should be no sacred cows. Some are a little more sacred than others, sure. But at the end of the day, you should be willing to go wherever it is you need to go to tell a story that you want to tell. And there are times we've seen 
people break mythology and break lore and break canon and it be a disaster. We've seen them do it and have it been amazing. We, you know, I, so I don't think there's any one definitive rule to that. Rob, as somebody, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller yourself, how do you approach that? <clears throat> well, I, I think, okay, it, I agree with what you said, that people should be allowed to tell whatever stories they want. That said, if you're working in an established universe that that we've we've seen for a long time if you inject something totally new into that universe or say give a character that we've been watching for a long time powers you didn't know uh could have existed as long as you explain it within the realm of whatever lore you're working in and make it credible i say okay because i look back to everything john Everything to me goes back to the real world. We know that when you're watching, say, a cop thriller, that we know that guns are only so powerful, that cars can't fly. We know that that human beings can only take so much punishment before they'll die. And if you're trying to tell a realistic, hard-boiled detective story or a cop thriller set on the mean streets of L.A., you you can't make suddenly your cop superhuman who can deflect bullets with his skin. Now, yeah, you could do that, but it's going to break the laws of physics and medicine that we know and understand. And in my mind, then the story doesn't work anymore. So you have to work within the established believability of the universe that you're working in. And can you do things that maybe we haven't seen before? Sure, but you still have to make them believable within the context of whatever universe your story is set in. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that because like I've, I've always said – like suspension of disbelief is great. I don't expect movies, particularly fantasy, sci-fi, whatever, to adhere by the rules of my real world. Right. All I want you to do is adhere to whatever you say the rules are of your world. Absolutely. Whatever your world is, what just stick to the to the laws and the rules that you say are in your world. That's yep. all. That's all. If you say in your world that teleportation man can't teleport more than one mile then don't have them teleport five miles. Right, exactly. That, that's all I'm saying. If you set up the rules in your world, then I'm good with it. So I, I agree with that. I completely agree with that. All right. Uh, let's just get a couple more in here while we still got Rob with us. Uh, Corona, beer, ex, Corona Extra Beer writes, Breaking news. We here at Corona Extra Beer have decided to rebrand our product due to the negative press surrounding our current worldwide pandemic. So, coming soon, we are proud to announce the new name for our beer, introducing Ebola Premium. Rob, I do have to say, joking aside, I feel just horrible for Corona. I'm not even a beer drinker, but I feel horrible for them because through no fault of their own, the name, the their brand is taking a beating. <laughs> Their brand right. is absolutely taking a beating and it's through no fault of their own. And I don't drink beer, so I don't even care. But, uh, but yeah, I, I got to imagine that's going to, that's going to hurt them moving forward. I think it's going to hurt them moving forward, unfortunately. Yeah, All right. I think so too. All right. 24 Savage writes chances for a Condor Man sequel or reboot. Ah, uh, no, no, just no. And I know you're being <laughs> facetious. But Rob, do you own the Blu-ray of Condor Man? I would watch a Condor Man sequel. I know I you would. In the theater. <laughs> do you have the Blu-ray though? That's the big question. Do you have a Condor I, no, Man I, Blu-ray? I do not. Is Condor Man on Disney Plus? Oh, I don't I would, know. I would watch the heck out of that. I haven't seen that movie. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question. 
I will have to, I'm going to look into that. Now I'm morbidly curious about that. (laughs) Morbidly curious. Okay. Last question we'll do with Rob here because we got to let him get out of here. Um, Let's see. They write, uh, oh, sorry. uh, uh, Guillaume writes, hey, John, Rob, rewatch Blade Runner. Uh, 2049 the other night, and it's by far one of my favorite sequels ever made. I really like the original, but the cinematography by Roger Deakins makes it one of the most visually gorgeous films ever made. Thoughts? Hey, listen, Rob, I'm on record. You know, I have the unpopular opinion that I'm not a big fan of the original Blade Runner. I actually prefer Blade Runner 2049, and it is visually stunning. And, you know, it's aside from Roger Deakins' cinematography, it's a really good movie. It's just a really good movie that I enjoyed very much from a sci-fi point of view, from um, from being a deeper kind of film point of view, but also absolutely visually stunning. That movie deserved better. That movie deserved not to flop, but it's one of, you know, we've talked about before, I thought one of the worst marketing campaigns for a movie in a long, long time. But anyway, Rob, your thoughts on Blade Runner 2049, specifically the cinematography. Dude, it, it, the movie is astonishing. And not only is it a visually sumptuous film, the sound, it has one of the best sound mixes I've ever heard. One of the most aggressive, exciting, enveloping. I mean, between Deacon cinematography, which, like, my God, uh, if ever a movie was, was I mean, there's different kind. It's so stylized, and yet it's so, I don't think I've ever seen cinematography uh, work so well to create the universe of the movie itself. I mean, it's so essential to the, that movie, that movie makes me feel like I've been transported somewhere else. Uh, That film is just, not that the original doesn't do that as well, but there's something different about Blade Runner 2049. It has its own visual look. They didn't emulate, the Blade Runner feel is there, but it looks like its own thing. And my God, do I love the way that movie looks. And Deacon's man, he just slayed it with that film uh by the way need to bring this up right now breaking news guys according to variety the batman movie has got a new release date apparently has been delayed uh, I'm, I'm just reading here this with you right now uh warner brothers is shaking up the release calendar for many of its 2020 and 2021 films including the batman and the soprano sequel a prequel, The Many Saints of Newark. The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson and directed by Matt Reeves, was originally expected to debut on June 25th, 2021, and will now launch on October 1st of 2021. So July, August, September, October. It's about three months, three months and a bit, three months and a week it's been delayed. Uh, the Many Saints of New York had been set for September 25th, 2020, and has been pushed to March, 20, uh, March 12th, 2021. Uh, so... Uh, they say Warner Brothers has also shuffled release dates for their superhero movies, The Flash, from August 1st, 2022 to June 1st uh, to June 2nd, 2022. So according to that, they've moved up the date, which says they're still planning on shooting the movie. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, and Shazam 2 from April 1st, 2022 to November 4th, 2022. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis Presley biopic on and on and on. Big news there. Batman has been delayed. Only looks like by about 13 weeks, uh, which isn't horrible which is probably again rob i don't think this is a matter we'll probably talk more about this on the show tomorrow i don't think this is a matter of we can't get batman ready on time now i have a feeling this is more of a uh ramification of warner brothers just having to shuffle their whole movie slate 
yeah. at this point and remove things around. Like if, if Batman had been moved off a year, I would think this is an issue of them not being able to have Batman ready in time. I don't think this is an issue of not being able to get Batman in ready in time. I think they would have Batman ready in time for that original release date. The fact that it's only 13 or 14 weeks difference to me, it seems to suggest that it's a part of the overall reshuffling around that Warner Brothers is having. What do you think about this? Are you surp- I'm a little bit surprised because, again, it seemed to me they weren't going to have any problem getting Batman done in time. But I guess it makes sense if they're reshuffling their whole lineup. I guess it makes sense it would get moved. How do you see this? I, I think that's exactly what it is. I don't think it has any reflection on the production of the film at all. I think it's entirely a reaction to it's a domino effect the same way the MCU has pushed every movie. They, they're just skipping a release date. They're pushing everything down. Warner Brothers is doing the same thing. We're going to see their entire slate of films is going to move. And I think it's smart. Yeah. And again, here, I, I, I just reemphasize this again. I think the fact that it is such a minimal move. Like in the grand scheme of things, considering this movie is still a year and a half away or over a year away, the fact that it's only like a, a, a 12, 13, 14 week shove, that to me says this is just a matter of them reshuffling. It, it, I don't think it has anything to speak of in terms of that. Anyway, Rob, I'm glad you were here for that last little thought. I'm sure you and I will yeah. talk about this more uh, on tomorrow's show. But Rob, in the meantime, thank you so much for being here. And of course, we'll have you back here again tomorrow. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work and my show, Rob's Observations, the show about something. All right, Rob, always good to have you here and we will talk to you next time, dude. Have fun. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right, guys, that was one Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. And of course, we'll have Robert back on again tomorrow. For now, let's keep on going through your live questions. The next one comes into us from Robert uh, Benham who writes, Hello, John. I live in Halifax. It's the city where I was born. Actually, I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I know where this is going. Uh, I was just wondering if you heard the news that at least 17 people, including an RCMP officer, had been killed in a mass shooting incident in Nova Scotia on Sunday, making it the worst mass shooting in Canadian history, one of the only mass shootings ever in Canadian history. This sort of thing just doesn't happen in Canada. This sort of thing just doesn't happen in Canada. Um, and particularly in a, in a province like Nova Scotia near, near Halifax, it happened about an hour North of Halifax. Uh, and yeah, I did hear about it. My, I, I'm just gutted about it. Um, of course I, I need to, I wanted to find, I, I found out about this just as, as I was getting ready to do the show this morning. I haven't had a chance to reach out to my mother because my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the, of the family is the Italian side, but my mother's side of the family comes from Halifax. And I need to get a hold of my mother later just to make sure, you know, our, our family and friends are okay. But yeah, I did hear about it. Just devastating here. Cause again, this is just not, this is an American thing. This isn't a Canadian thing. Um, and it just doesn't happen there. So, uh, really gutted to hear about it. And I'll, I'll find out more once our show is done here. All right. Thanks for writing that in Robert. Uh, and take care of yourself in Halifax there, dude. All right. T- uh, Tarek D writes, uh, I finished the Lord of the Rings trilogy last night. Epic. I loved every minute and Return of the King is now in my top 10 films of all time. I can't believe I've been deprived of such greatness until now. The extended editions will be getting a watch sometime in the near future. That is awesome. And it's true. Return of the King, one of the greatest films of all time. The Lord of the Rings franchise, some of the greatest movies of all time. I love the fact that you were able to take this opportunity while in lockdown to get caught up. And I guess I can take my headphones off now to get get caught up on those. And I'm glad you're enjoying them. And you will. And, and by the way, good on you for watching the theatrical versions first, because now you can go in and watch the extended stuff and just see the extra stuff that wasn't there before, right? So that was a good order to do it. In, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, Tariq. So thanks for sharing that, man. An anonymous viewer writes, Lord of the Rings, speaking of Lord of the Rings, <clears throat> 
Might be my favorite trilogy of all time now as well. I got a feeling this is probably uh, Tariq again. Uh, some of my other favorites include The Apes with Caesar trilogy, Captain America, Star Wars original trilogy, Back to the Future, The Godfather, and uh, and Spider-Man. Many more to go. I effing love movies. Yeah, it's great. And by the way, I whenever the, the, the topic of great trilogies come up, a lot of people get surprised when I say you cannot remember or cannot forget, I should say, you cannot forget that it's um, about the Toy Story trilogy. I mean, I understand because it's an animated thing. We often overlook it. But the Toy Story trilogy, these are the highest critically rated trilogies of all time. Like a couple of the Toy Story movies are at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. You cannot, don't overlook that. Don't overlook that at all. Um, at all. By the way, I see somebody misunderstood what I was saying a little bit earlier. Somebody in the thing wanted to take issue with what I said. I see this up popping up in the live stream. Somebody is saying, what do you mean it's an American thing? Let, let me be clear. In case it wasn't abundantly clear what I meant by that, is that unfortunately living in the States, we've, we've, this happens in the States. You know, and a lot of a lot of people have written about and a lot of commentators talk about how we've almost become in the States. It becomes a little bit desensitizing because we've seen something like this horrible, horrible stuff happen every once in a while in the States. What I meant by what I said was in case it wasn't abundantly clear was it's such a new thing for Canada. It's just not something we see in Canada. It doesn't mean it's any less tragic when it happens in the States. So if anybody was choosing to get offended by what I said, you just misunderstood what I was saying. All I was saying was, it's just something we are not accustomed to at all. We don't have something like this happen every year or every whatever. It's just it's just different. It's just it's it's something we wouldn't think could happen there. Like I think living in the States, <clears throat> I think a lot of people in the States are cognizant of the fact that it's something that could happen here. It could. In Canada, we've lived into this false, I think we've lived in this false impression that it just couldn't happen there. Uh, as a Canadian, I can say that. It's just something that we lived under the false impression that it couldn't happen there. Whereas I think in the U.S., people, because it's happened so many times here, I think people are more aware of the fact that, yes, it could happen here. And in Canada, we've lived in this false sense that it couldn't happen here. And that's why, as a Canadian, it feels like that, that's that's what I meant when I said this isn't a Canadian thing. I mean, it's an American thing. I'm talking simply about perception, wrong perception, uh, perception of that. So please, if you were offended by what I said, please understand the actual what I actually meant by that. If it came across the wrong way, I apologize for that. But I, I, I wanted to be abundantly clear what I meant by that comment. So hopefully that clears that up anyway. All right. Next up here. Um, do, 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 where are we? Where did we were on anonymous Dylan writes, uh, AKA trip Mac writes, Hey John, uh, we met at the hundred million views party. Well, thank you for being there at that. I, that was a great night. Uh, and I have to say it was an absolute pleasure with you leaving for Seattle. I was wondering what the chances were you do another evening like that. I had a blast and would love to see you before you go. Um, I don't know. Like, listen, there's a possibility we may not move to Seattle. Now, for those of you who know what's going on, so my wife, uh, and she just left Hasbro and has taken a new senior uh, role. She's the newest uh, senior program manager at Amazon now. And of course, Amazon's main office isn't there. But of course, she can't go and work in Amazon's office right now in Seattle because everything's shut down there. So she's working from here. It could be months before she needs to go out to Seattle. And even though, even once she goes, I still got to be here for another five or six months just to get my movie finished. And so I'll be, Ann and I will probably be going back and forth between Seattle and LA. But listen, who knows? There's a chance that, you know, Ann 
worked so well remotely for the first few months that maybe Amazon goes, or you know what? This is working great. You don't need to move out to Seattle. You can do your job from there. Work out of our LA office. So, I I mean, I don't know. Uh, That being said, uh, and then who knows how long we stay in Seattle. Maybe she's at Amazon for two or three years, and then we come back to LA. I mean, I don't know. Or we go to Canada. I, I don't know. So, Considering how much uncertainty there is, I don't think I'll have a going away party uh, or anything like that. Uh, But I'll tell you what, if we hit 200 million views before I leave, we will do another party. How about that? If we hit 200 million views, we will do another party. All right. The man who stares at goats writes, do you think um, PG-13 Fox films like Ford v. Ferrari and Knives Out will come to Disney Plus, go to Hulu or maybe both? I think PG-13, they're pretty safe. They'll go to Disney Plus. Um, for the most part, like Knives Out is fairly family friendly. It's not a kid's movie, but listen, they're family friendly and kids movies are two different things. They're two completely different things. Like some people are under the impression that Disney plus is just meant for kids movies. No, but it's meant that a family could sit down and watch it. And yeah, so I have a feeling both those, you know, what? Ford v. Ferrari might be more of a Hulu film. Now that I think, not because it's not family appropriate, I think for the most part it is mostly family appropriate, but just the nature of the movie, maybe it feels a little bit more like a Hulu film. I have a feeling Knives Out, though, will be on Disney+. Plus. I have a feeling Knives Out will be on Disney+. Plus. Who knows? Maybe both of them will, maybe neither of them will. But I, if I had to guess right now, my guess, pure speculation guess, is that Ford v. Ferrari ends up on Hulu and that... Um, Knives Out ends up on Disney+. Plus. That's my guess at any rate. Uh, this is a placeholder name writes, uh, think about it, Jojo Rabbit on Disney+. Plus. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. All right, Eduardo San Miguel writes, despite that almost every project are being, listen, despite that almost every project are being and had been shot on digital cameras, a number of cinematographers and directors still prefer to shoot their projects on celluloid film due to aesthetic reasons. What are your thoughts? Thanks and stay safe. Well, actually, I don't know if it was you, Eduardo. Somebody sent in almost the exact same question last week uh, that we did address, but I I will address it again. Um, Listen, there is simply no reason to shoot on film anymore. There just isn't. But... There's, there is a very important argument to be made <clears throat> as a storyteller and as a filmmaker to work with what you are comfortable with. And if what gets, if you're a filmmaker and a director and what really gets you going and what you're really comfortable with and what you like working with is that actual physical film, then do that. I, I think there's a good argument to be made for that. Because, you know, the medium that you're shooting on is a big part of your process. And if you're a filmmaker like a Quentin Tarantino or whatever, and that is your process and you like working with the physical, actual film, and that just does it for you, fine. Listen, it's been proven over and over and over again. There is no aesthetic shot on natural film that cannot be replicated in digital. It's just been proven. But you cannot underestimate how important it is to be comfortable with the medium you're working with. And if there are still filmmakers that like doing that, then they should continue doing that. And I've got no problem with it. No problem with it. All right. Anyway, that's just my thought on that, Eduardo. All right. Amir writes, Hey guys, my movie recommendation today is a French movie called A Prophet about a young guy who is sent to prison where he's where he's compelled to work for a Croatian gangster. I'm not sure what that is. An award-winning film that's not many people have seen. I highly recommend it. 
I, you know what? I think somebody else wrote in. Let me just double check on this. I believe somebody else wrote in uh, about this film. Uh, that's not the one I'm looking at. Huh. You know, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong uh, movie. There are several movies called The Prophet. There's a 2011 movie starring uh, Thandie Newton. There is a 2014 movie with Liam Neeson that I believe is an animated film that he did uh, a voice work on. It's, it's Clearly, this isn't the movie. I, I was thinking it was another movie that somebody else had written and recommended. Anyway, Mir, as always, when people write in recommendations, thank you because now there's a lot of people watching this that are probably going to go and check that out. But do me a favor. Send me an email at johnthejohncampusshow.com if you don't mind and let me know which year and which movie specifically you're talking about because there's a number of movies called The Prophet and I'd like to make sure I know which one you're talking about specifically. Thanks for sharing that, man. All right, Isaac Beebe writes, considering that you live in LA and before this pandemic started, I was just wondering, do you and Anne ever go go to be the audiences for any of the late night talk shows like Conan, Kimmel, Ellen, or Corden? Nope, we don't. Not that I have, not that I wouldn't mind. I just never think to do it. The one time we did something like that, the one time we did something like that, it was for, I'm free, why am I freezing on his name here? Hold on a second. Um, uh, grandma's boy, hold on a second. It, I don't know why I'm freezing. The guy was great. Why am I freezing on his name? He was awesome in Saturday Night Live. Uh, I might even, I don't even be looking him up. I don't even think he was in this movie I'm looking up now. Why I'm, is it Dirty Work? Maybe that's, hold on a second. Uh, Dirty work. I think that's the movie I'm thinking about. Norm MacDonald. Yes, Norm MacDonald. So for a short time, Norm MacDonald had his own kind of late night variety comedy show that was like sports and things like that. And I can't remember the exact name of the show. Let me see if I can look up the exact name of the show because I'm a I really like Norm MacDonald's comedy. I think he's really funny. And I'm a big sports guy. So let me see, where was the name of the show? And of course, he's the voice, by the way, of Yafit in um, um, the Orville right now. What was the name of the show he did? It was called... Oh my gosh, it's going back a ways. You know, I'm not seeing it. What was the name of that damn show? The Norm MacDonald Sports Show. If you guys know in the comments section, can you guys let me know what the name of that show was? It was like a late night sports show. He only It only lasted like one season. And I cannot find it for the life of me. Uh, the Funny People, Grown Ups, Jack and Jill, Outback, The Adventures. I think I'm going back too far now. Centerville, The Ridiculous, Treasure. No, it was older than that. Sorry, I shouldn't be wasting time like this, but now it's it's killing me. Uh, let's see. I'm not seeing anybody. I don't think it was called the daily sport. Maybe it was called the daily sports show. I don't know, but now I, I cannot find it anywhere, but at anyway, sports show with Norm McDonald's. Is that the name? Of, I don't know. But anyway, Ann and I went to a screening of, went to a taping of that once and it was hilarious. Uh, it was absolutely hilarious. I loved that show. I thought it was great, but it lasted one season. It got canceled. And I think actually the filming we were at might have been for its final episode, but we didn't know it at the time anyway. Uh, but no, other than that, I've, no, I've never been to any of the screenings uh, or been a part of the studio audience for any of those shows. But now that you mentioned it, maybe I should try to take advantage of that before I go to Seattle. Might not be a bad idea because I wouldn't mind going to any of those. Anyway, good idea, Isaac. All right. Next up, Kian Shingler writes, John, 
Have you seen Counterpart on Amazon Prime, a star subscription? Epic series, one of the best I've seen. So many layers while asking some very big, uh, overarching questions at the same time. No, if you're talking about the J.K. Simmons one, no. Not because I wouldn't love to see it, but because I can't sign up for another service. Uh, so I don't, I used to have stars long time, a while ago. I used to have stars, but I, I don't have stars now and I just couldn't sign up for another service to watch it. But I am, thank you for reminding me about it because like ever since I saw the first trailer for it, I'm like, this looks great. And has JK Simmons. If I'm remembering, if I'm thinking about the right show, you know what? I better just double check here. Uh, to make sure I'm, I'm thinking of the right one. Yes, it is the one with J.K. Simmons. Um, I've always been interested in it, but I've never had a chance to watch it because I just can't sign up for yet another thing. Yet another thing. Because stars, yeah, you can get stars through Amazon Prime, but you have to pay that extra subscription fee for stars within your Amazon. And I just sign up. I just, I have too many things. I can't sign up for yet another one, but I want to see that. Hopefully one of these days I'll get around to watching it. Thanks for, for bringing that up, King, because I am very, very curious about the show and I do want to see it. So thank you for putting it back on my radar. Um, and Kin sent in the exact same thing. Same answer. Have not watched it yet, but I would really, really love to. I would really love to. All right. Django 19 writes, Hey, John, uh, just like you trusted us to watch Doom Patrol and Harley Quinn, you got to trust us and get get back on Better Call Saul. The show has gotten so intense, even though we know what it leads up to in Breaking Bad. Uh, the season finale is tomorrow night uh, with only one more season to go. Hey, listen, you don't have to sell me on that one, Django. You don't have to sell me on that one. I have watched like the first three up three seasons two or three seasons. I can't remember how far I got. And I really enjoyed it. And I, I have no explanation for you as to why I didn't finish it off. I really enjoyed it. I watched it and I enjoyed it. So I fully intend, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get around to it. Cause there's a bunch of other stuff I want to watch first, but I fully, fully, fully intend to get back on uh, better call Saul because I've, I've seen a bunch of it. I really did enjoy it. And uh, I just, for unexplicable reasons, never got around to finishing it, but I will. I totally will. All right. Ram writes, hey, John, have you seen The Town? Oh, of course I've seen The Town. I love The Town. I think it's fantastic. Written and, direct, written and directed and starring uh, Ben Affleck. I watched it with a friend on Netflix party last night. What a great movie. The film is constantly... Uh, on a knife's edge, super tense with strong performances, highly recommended. Absolutely. It's one of the movies that made you realize Ben Affleck was one of the actual, who would have thought was one of the best directors working in Hollywood at the time. The, I mean, between um, uh, Gone Baby Gone, um, Gone Baby Gone, The Town, and Argo, like he ripped off these three movies in a row. They were just like stunningly good, stunningly good. He's such, and even We Live the Night or whatever it's called. I even thought that was his worst film, but I even thought that was a good film. I think that movie got more crap than it deserved. It's it's the weakest of the four that he directed, but I even thought that was pretty good. I think he's a tremendous director, and I thought that movie was great, Ram. I really, really enjoyed it. Anyway, uh, Edward Wells writes, Weekend lockdown movies, Leprechaun, uh, Jennifer Aniston, Romeo Must Die, Jet Li and Aaliyah, uh, Congo, Laura Lenny. Man, I haven't talked about those movies in a while. Congo is one that I you would think I would really like. I'm not big on Congo. Romeo Must Die is a nice little Jet Li movie. Just kind of highlighted though why Jet Li wasn't able to really break through and become the big, big North American star like maybe he could have at some point. And I'm, I'm not the biggest Leprechaun fan, I gotta tell you, but it is a fun little series. I'll tell you what, for me, Leprechaun, the more ridiculous Leprechaun got, 
the more enjoyable it was for me. I don't know why, but the more ridiculous it got, the more enjoyable it got for me. All right, Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, just wow, I can't believe it's been a year since the highly anticipated endgame. I recall it as if it was yesterday, going to drastic measures to avoid any and all spoilers and telling manager, uh, need a day, a, a half day off to get me mentally prepared to take me back. I'll tell you what, it is weird to think it's been a year. This week, for those of you who weren't here at the beginning of the show, this week is the, marks the one-year anniversary of the release of Avengers Endgame, the movie that went on to buy a hair become the highest grossing film of all time, uh, uh, overtaking a movie that held that spot for nearly 10 years in Avatar and beating it out by $7 million. Now, of course, at some point, uh, Disney will re-release Avatar back into the theaters for the first time in 10 years. They will re-release Avatar to help promote the upcoming Avatar 2, at which point Avatar will again become the number one box office film of all time. And then at some point in the future, Disney again will re-release Avengers Endgame back into the theater, so it will retake the numbers one spot. And I think we are destined for the next number of years to see this game of hopscotch as Disney re-releases Avatar and Disney re-releases um, Endgame to retake over the number one spot the box office bottom line is the winner is disney that's the bottom line all right mark woodward writes or woodhouse writes what do you think was going through thanos's mind right before he dusted away um that he failed or that he was wrong about his destiny Ooh. you know that's a really good question when i think back to the look on his face there was a resignation on his face as he realized everybody's dusting and he had to know he was about to go too. He had to know that. I think it would probably be disbelief. I think it would probably be disbelief mixed with failure. So I, I don't know, but man, yeah, I think you can go back and watch. And again, we're going to do a watch party of Endgame later this week, but I think you can go back and watch that. And I think there is a lot going on in his face. None of it good. But, you know, it wasn't even, he wasn't afraid. He was like, he's not, oh no, I'm going to die. There was none of that. It was, I think it was more of the, the sense of failure, disbelief and failure, which might actually be a nice way of mixing in about the, his whole belief about his destiny. That's a really good observation, Mark. All right. Alexander Kent writes, I believe Thanos uh, delivered a Dominic Tretto moment referring to winning uh, winning is winning speech uh, in Fast and Furious. Winning is winning um, in Endgame. When he gave the speech, uh, couldn't live with your failure. And what did that uh, bring you back to me? What did you think of this speech moment? Oh, it was gutting. Fear it. Run from it. I mean, it was, it was a soliloquy in many ways of him basically setting up this is the situation. And it also tells us a lot, that one little soliloquy, if you will, that one little monologue gave us a lot of insight into what Thanos' mindset was. That whole thing, going back to what the last person says, his belief that he is inevitable. I am inevitable, right? And it kind of finds its roots in that little soliloquy. It is a powerful moment in the movie that happens so immediately, uh, going back into um, uh, Infinity War. Going back into Infinity War, it's an absolute powerful moment. It's a, it's a great, great thing. Well pointed out, Alexander. Well pointed out. All right. Um, Frank Van Vardenhuisen writes, 
Hey guys from the Netherlands, and I follow San Diego Comic-Con every year on Twitch and YouTube. I hope to go one day and run into you guys, but for now, what a bummer. Absolutely, what a bummer. I mean, listen, I agree with the decision to close it down. I agree with it. It's the right thing to do. That doesn't mean I don't feel crappy about it. You know, we've, of those of us who are pet owners, we've all probably had that experience that at some point we had to let our, put our pet down for their own good. And we agree with it and we know it's the right thing to do, but that doesn't mean we don't feel crappy for the next five years. Um, and that's how I kind of feel about Comic-Con being shut down. I get it. I agree with it. It's the right thing to do, but I totally feel crappy about it. And hopefully we get to see you there at some point, Frank. And uh, thank you for writing in from the ne Netherlands, my friend. And hopefully we get to see you there. All right. Nicholas Piera writes, what do you both think about the dosage of realism in DC movies? Uh, hasn't there been enough times when it was too much? Uh, Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy is good, but I can't think of it as a Batman arc, partially because of the Chicago-like Gotham. Uh, knowing that DC heroes and cities are golden age metaphors for human psychologies and societies, isn't it odd to want them to be as literal and realistic as possible? I just can't imagine a modern and realistic DC universe in which the Flash would face his rogues gallery. Wouldn't it be better for DC films to present fantastical retro futuristic cities for their heroes, unlike Marvel with New York City? Uh, Brainiac shouldn't be ashamed of locking up cities in bottles, and Poison Ivy doesn't need to look like Greta Thunberg to be interesting. Well, here's the thing, Nicholas, and you obviously put a lot of thought into that. Here's my thought on this. There is no one formula fix all. you got to remember, when Christopher Nolan made his Batman movie, he was not making a DCEU movie. As a matter of fact, he was wholeheartedly against having other superheroes in this world. And I would make the argument, remember, every film is different. Every film is different. And while there is a lot of legitimacy in the things you're saying, I would also caution to say you got to understand there's not one application for a rule that applies to all movies. Christopher Nolan's Batman, one of the big reasons it was so effective was because it felt like it was in our reality. Now, not another type of Batman movie would have benefited from something else, but the, the reason Nolan's movie had such impact was because to us, what was going on felt so relatable in our world. You know, I always say one of the brilliant things about comic book movies is bringing the extraordinary into the mundane or bringing the fantastical into the mundane. The mundane being real world, real reality. And then bringing an injection of the fantastical into our reality. And then how do those two things mix? And I think there are types of stories to tell where you do bring that slightly more imagination-fueled element into the real world. But it's within the context of our real world that we find the relatability. And there was something very special about that, the way Christopher Nolan did that, making them, to some people, the greatest comic book movies ever made, particularly The Dark Knight. A lot, there's a bunch of people who think The Dark Knight is the greatest comic book movie ever made. I think it's one of the best comic book movies ever made, but a lot of people believe it is the best comic book movie ever made. And you can see why. And you can understand why. So, no, it really all depends on the individual story. For instance, the type of comic book movies you're talking about, yes, depending on the story you're telling and the type of DNA you want that to have, what you're describing is exactly the right, right way for them to go. Absolutely. 
But there's not one kind of comic book movie that can only be done one way. The beautiful thing about comic book movies, as we're learning over the last few years, is that there's not one formula that needs to be followed to make them good, make them successful, make them make them make our imaginations rates and all that kind of stuff. So I like having the one foot in the real world. I got to tell you, for me, that works. But it depends on the movie and the story you're telling. So it, it's on a film by film basis, Nicholas. And I think you raised some really interesting points, dude. And guys, I'd like to know what do you think about what Nicholas is talking about? Jump down into the comments section and let him know what you think about that. Because I think there's some really good insightful stuff about that. I think there's some other things to consider as well. Let me know what you guys think about that. All right. Uh, next up, Matthew Phillips writes. Hey, John and Rob, a YouTuber that I follow made a video listing his favorite movies of the year uh, of of every year of his life. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I send you both a big tip. Um, are you up to the challenge to do the same? I may make a video too, and trust me, there will be some hard decisions. I'm not interested in doing that, but that sounds like a really fascinating one. Uh, that's a really fascinating one. I have no interest in doing that personally. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in other people doing it and and doing a good job with it. That sounds great. Doesn't sound like something I'd be interested in. Um, I don't I don't see the need to do that, and I honestly don't want to put in the number of hours it would take me to go through every single year um, that I've been alive and doing because that would be a real ridiculous amount of man hours for me for a short video that not a lot of people are going to watch. So I, I don't really it probably be a bad use of my time so i'm not really interested in that for myself but i think the concept is fascinating it's a great concept and uh it, i'm sure the youtuber you follow did a great job with it but it's just not one i see any purpose in doing for myself that's all all right thanks for pointing that out though matthew all right uh everything entertainment rights who gets treated worse jerry and parks and rec or toby in the office i'm gonna say toby in the office gets treated worse because jerry while Jerry or Gary or whichever name he goes by, because he changes his names, at the end of the day, his bosses love him, right? Like I just finished watching an episode of Parks and Rec where uh, Leslie is busting herself trying to throw Jerry a surprise birthday party for his birthday, you know? Uh, and even Ron Swanson speaks positively of him. So I would say at the end of the day, Toby gets treated worse. Jerry, he gets treated bad, but at the end of the day, they love him. And so I'll say Toby gets treated worse. Good question, though, everything. All right, Goku's uh, on DBZ writes, I just wanted to mention my top four favorite theatrical Tim Curry films. Nice. Muppet Treasure Island, Three Musketeers. I love him in Three Musketeers, by the way. Uh, Legend, Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'm devastated. Goku, that you've left off my favorite Tim Curry in a movie thing. And I'm not even talking about Clue. A lot of people think I'm talking about Clue. I'm not talking about Clue. I'm talking about the Sylvester Stallone movie Oscar as Dr. Poole. I love him in Oscar. I love that movie, but I love your list as well. But if you haven't seen Oscar, guys, check out Oscar. And it's one of my... It's honestly... One of my favorite Sylvester Stallone movies. I don't know why. Nobody agrees with me, but I love that movie so much. All right. Uh, Goku uh, also writes, These five films, in my view, are criminally underrated. The Rocketeer, Dick Tracy, The Count of Monte Cristo. That, that is an underrated film. That's a really, really good film. Uh, Dark City. I think a lot of people love The Dark City. Uh, and The Rescuers Down Under. Your thoughts? I think 
There are a couple there. You know what? Dick Tracy is better than people give it credit for. I, I agree with that. The Rocketeer, it's got a real following and a real fan base. So I don't know if I'd say that's underrated. Uh, the same as Count of Monte Cristo. More people need to appreciate that movie because it's really a wonderful, wonderful film. Dark City, I think a lot of people really do appreciate it. Rescuers Down Under, I can't comment on that one. But I love the topic of underrated movies. Underrated and underappreciated films, I think, is a great topic because there are a lot of films out there that just deserve more recognition. So thanks for giving us that list, Goku. All right, Edgar Navarro writes, "Us, um, I found your cameo in Hulk. Now, listen, to be fair, there are a bunch of people over the years who thought they found me in Hulk and said, oh, yeah, you were this guy in this part. I'm like, actually, that wasn't me. And there are people who thought they found me in Hulk. And they say, oh, you were this guy in this part. And I go, actually, yeah, that is it. I never will publicly say. I'll never publicly say, but uh, just make sure it, it might have been me, it might not, because some people get it right, some people get it wrong. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. All right, let's see here. Diamond Dog's Puppy writes, Hey, John, if the current pandemic and the order of no professional sports being played continues into the next year, which of the four major pro sports leagues would you miss watching the most? Also, which sport would thrive the most without fans in attendance? I mean, if there was going to be no sports for the next year, and they won't do that, at, at some point, sports will open back up, even if it means they have to open up the sports again without audiences, and that's fine. That's fine. It'll be weird at first, but I think I'll get used to it. You know what? Even one of the strange, Anne and Kaori watch wrestling every week. I don't really, but sometimes I'll be here, so I'll watch it with them, whatever. And the wrestling without an audience is the strangest thing because 80% of wrestling is... And it's not sports, it's sports entertainment, but still 80% of wrestling is playing to the audience. And it's really weird seeing professional wrestling with no audience. But I got to tell you, as the weeks have rolled on and Ann and Corey continue to watch it, it's gotten less and less weird to me not seeing, I've kind of gotten used to now seeing wrestling on my TV with no live audience. And I'll tell you what, MMA I'm already used to, like, I watch Ultimate Fighter. And Ultimate Fighter was always done with no audience. Just, you know, just their individual teams would be in their corner, but there was no audience. It's perfectly fine. I think I can watch football without an audience. Perfectly fine. I think I can watch hockey without an audience. Perfectly fine. I think we will get back to that. The one I would miss the most is, you know, I'm a mixed martial arts guy, so I would miss MMA the most. That's what I would miss the most. That and football. Uh, but obviously hockey. I mean, I'm Canadian. Hockey is the answer. Uh, but uh, I believe it will all be back. I just think you might see them having to roll back in cautiously and carefully without an audience involved. Uh, let's see here. Robert Perez writes, AMC should light the beacons of Rohan. The beacons so Rohan can answer them. The beacons have been lit. Gondor calls for aid and Rohan shall answer. I mean, one of the greatest moments there. Maybe that's what AMC needs to do at this point. Maybe that's what they need to do. All right. Uh, Eric Claussen writes, hey, John, I did it. I am now an AMC shareholder. Tell you what, not a bad move because if you bought it when AMC stock was all the way down at $2, it's now at the last time I checked this morning it was at $3.40. If you had bought a thousand shares, if you had bought a thousand shares when it was at two bucks, you're now up 1400 bucks. Think about that. You are now up 1400 bucks. 
again, don't take, don't listen. I'm not a financial advisor. Don't listen to me. I'm just saying you, you're in a pretty good spot today if that's what you did. Sean Anthony writes, happy 420, y'all. Shout out to the chat and thank you for that, Sean. Shout out to you as well, my friend. Carlos Camillo writes, condolences to your note to to your Nova Scotia. Awful what happened. Yeah, it, it is. It, like You never like hearing about stuff like this anywhere in the world, but it obviously hits a little bit closer to home when it is home. And uh, like my city of where I was born, like Hamilton, Ontario is home for me, but I was born in Halifax and I still have family there. And it's uh, just awful, awful to hear. Thank you for that, Carlos. All right. Uh, Raj writes, uh, my top 10 Hollywood movies without any specific order. Godfather 2. Awesome. Apocalypse Now. Awesome. Dark Knight. Awesome. Thin Red Line. Awesome. Brokeback Mountain. Awesome. Babel. Shawshank Redemption. Schindler's List. Unforgiven. The Pianist. Ooh, The Pianist isn't one that gets mentioned a lot. That one doesn't get mentioned a lot. And it won, um, what's his, uh, why am I freezing out his name? It won, what's his name, uh, his best academy, his best actor uh, award. It was uh, Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody. I'll say it as I bring up the IMDb page. One second. Uh, yeah, Adrian Brody for The Pianist won his Academy Award. Of course, one of the best Academy Award moments in history with any planted a kiss on, um, uh, on the person presenting it to him, which was great. Uh, okay, we move on here. Uh, the great list, Raj. Great list. I mean, who wouldn't plan one on Halle Berry if they had the chance? Uh, all right. Uh, Jenny Talia writes, I hate it when people CGI me out of movies. Don't you just hate that when you get CGI? I'm going back, of course, to the controversy right now about Splash on Disney+. Plus. Uh, James Knows What's Up writes, Happy belated birthday, Sue. That's my mom. Uh, just had her birthday last week. Your Johnny boy will be on his way to see you soon. Hopefully, uh, we will all be able, we will all be on our way to see our loved ones soon, regardless of where they may live. True. And, you know, one of the, it sucked the other day, you know, it was my mom's birthday and um, my mom couldn't celebrate it with my siblings, even though they're there, the, the whole, the, my family's taking the social distancing very seriously, as I hope everybody is. Um but yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to go back to see my mom. And thank you for sending my mom those well wishes, James. I appreciate that. All right, next up, Froygon Jin writes, just finished reading Gaiman's Eternals. Tony Stark is a huge presence in his series, and I can see Feige using this storyline in the movie. So you're right, John. We will see Robert Downey Jr. again, maybe sooner than you think. Listen, I have zero doubt, zero doubt that Robert Downey Jr. will be back as Tony Stark one way, shape, or another. It may not be this year, might not be in two years, might not be in three years, but believe it, he'll be back. I doubt it'll be in Eternals, though. At least this first Eternals. I doubt it'll be in Eternals. Um, so I just don't see it happening that fast. Not to mention, I think he's going to want to put a lot of emphasis on the Eternals and not sidetrack it by bringing in another character like Tony Stark. But Johnny did it with Spider-Man. Yeah, but Spider-Man had already been around for a very, very long time in the movies. This is the first time in a movie we're getting the Eternals. So I doubt it'll be the Eternals, but you're damn right, Foygon. We're going to see him back for sure. Larry Lease writes, uh, whatever that is was supposed to be. Again, I have no idea what that is. Something to do with, so I finally clued in. Somebody said it had something to do with Christian. I have no idea what it is, so I can't address it. Uh, 20 Jackson Schaefer writes, uh, I recently watched my first Spaghetti Western and they were uh, the Dollars trilogies. I loved all three movies, especially Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. What are some other good old Westerns to watch? I mean, look, I'm not a historian on on Westerns. I mean, a couple of my favorite Westerns are actually more modern ones. For example, the reboot, the remake of 310 to Yuma, I think is fantastic. I personally think, even older ones considered, I personally think the best Western of all time 
was um, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. I still th- I think that's the best Western ever made, uh, quite personally. And by the way, there's a really underrated, we were just talking about underrated movies, uh, one that came out, I, I guess, a little over 10 years ago with Casey Affleck and uh, um, Brad Pitt called uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is a shakingly good movie. So, but yeah, there's a lot of great older Westerns too. I mean, you just named like the, 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 the hallmark of that era, but there are a lot others as well. So I'm glad you're getting those, but don't just limit yourselves to the older ones there. While there's not a lot of Westerns being made today, those three I just mentioned that are, I mean, they're not new films, but they're relatively new. You know what I'm saying? 310 to Yuma, Unforgiven, which I think is the greatest of all time. And, um, the assassination of Jesse James. Uh, make sure you put that into your repertoire as well, because those ones you will leave happy, my friend Jackson. You will leave happy watching those and enjoying those. But I'm glad you're using your time, dude, to get caught up in some of these classics. Good on you for taking advantage of that. All right. And thank you for writing in, man. I appreciate it. All right. Anthony Lucalano writes, we are not drunks. We are multimillionaires. I don't remember what that's from. It's not even ringing a bell, to be honest. It's probably a movie in a movie I've seen a thousand times, but I don't remember it. All right. Lord Vanderkill writes, uh, that's a good cut. Campy is back. I, oh, you're talking about my haircut. Yeah, finally, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't, I could not take my hair anymore. So I finally told Anne, here, I handed Anne the clippers. I put on a number four guard on it. Sit here, just shave, just shave it. Just go. Just do the whole thing. No styling, no anything else. Just number four guard on the clippers. Go. And Anne cut my hair off. And when everything opens back up again, I'll go to a a, a, a a proper barber and get it fixed up. But yeah, there it is. But thank you for the comment, Lord Vanderkill. I appreciate that, man. All right, next up, Anthony Lucalano writes, we want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. Again, sounds like a quote from a movie I've probably seen a thousand times and I don't know what it is off the top of my head. If you guys in the chat know what movie Anthony's referring to, please jump in and give your guesses in there because I'm sure he'd love to hear that. All right, next up, Tob Wigan writes, I've been re- I've been watching the Nolan trilogy and noticed on the digital copy of The Dark Knight, the IMAX scenes are no longer full screen like on Blu-ray. What's up with that? Size the file formatting? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I'll be honest with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're cool and I like them, but it doesn't matter. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Personally, I don't care. It does not affect my enjoyment of that movie whatsoever. But ultimately, it does raise an interesting question, Todd. Why? Like, why not just keep it the way it is? What's what's the problem with keeping it the way it is? The only explanation I can think of, because when you go to see the dark, when I, I remember when I went to go see the Dark Knight in theaters, if you remember, it would jump back and forth between the aspect ratios, right? And the full IMAX shot stuff looked breathtaking, yes, but it was jumping back and forth. My only thought as to why they did it, Todd, and I'm not saying I agree with it, and I'm not even saying this is why they did it. I'm just taking a wild guess here. Is for the average moviegoer, the average person who watches movies, they would probably find it distracting, the switching between the aspect ratios. That's the only thing I can guess. And they just figured, you know what, the majority of people at home notwithstanding the cinephiles, but the the vast, vast, vast majority of the home viewing audience who just picks up this movie and wants to watch it would probably prefer 
to not have it jumping around between aspect ratios and aspect ratios and they would probably just enjoy it if it just stayed one aspect ratio now we can agree or disagree about that and i may or be right or wrong I, I don't even know if that's the case but that would be my guess that would be my guess so let's see what it ultimately hey listen when it ends up on hbo max let's see what they do with it on hbo max Let's see what they do with it on HBO Max. It'll be interesting to see whether they uh, keep the original like swapping back and forth between the aspect ratios or if they just put it into one aspect ratio and keep it there. It'll be interesting to see, Todd. Let's keep our eyes on that. All right. Um, uh, Anthony Luclano, again, quote that I don't know it's from. I assure you I'm not drunk, officer. I honestly have only had a few ales. Again, not sure which. Probably, again, probably a movie I've seen a dozen times and I don't know. Hopefully you guys in the live chat do know what he's talking about. All right, Little Ray just sends in a super chat to be supportive. Thank you, Little Ray. Uh, Licardo writes, Hey, John and crew. Here are some of my favorite little-known 1980s cartoons. Black Star. I like Black Star. Um, Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, Galtar and the Golden Lance. I'm not familiar with that one. The Galaxy Rangers and, well, I remember Thundar the Barbarian. Uh, Thundar the Barbarian, thank you for all your hard work. Well, thanks. And there's a couple on there that I'm not familiar with. Licardo. So you're not wrong. We call them Little Nook at Black Star. Yes. Uh, Brave Star. Yes. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. I don't think I, I don't recall that one. Galtar and the Golden Lance. I'm not familiar with that one. Man, see, now I got to go and look all these up, dude. Now I got to go look all these up. Thanks for sending that in, Lakar. That's a really interesting list. Thanks for sending that, man. All right, Lode Vanderkill writes, movie suggestion, Phantasm 2. I'm not big on Phantasm 2 myself. You know what? I remember Rob and I talked about it once. Rob liked Phantasm 2 a lot. So he would probably raise a glass, Lord Vanderkill, to your recommendation and say cheers to that. All right. David uh, Patricus writes, thanks for the content. Oh, thank you, man. It's always nice when somebody just wants to write in to say something nice. And by the way, guys, I know this show has almost gone two and a half hours already. I know we don't normally go this long, but there are so many chats in there. I don't want to leave many to to a companion video. I want to get through as many of these as possible. You sent them in now. I want to see if I can get them in on the show that you sent it in for. So I'm going to keep right on rolling today. It's Monday. Rested my vocal cords over the weekend. So let's keep rolling here. All right. Uh, Chris Bradford writes, kind of funny that Darren Aronofsky wanted Joaquin Phoenix's Batman and he ended up playing Joker. It definitely would have been an interesting choice. Yeah, again, I have a very, very hard time seeing Joaquin Phoenix as Batman. I just have a hard time with it. Now, again, I always say the most important thing is talent and clearly Joaquin Phoenix is talent. But Joaquin Phoenix, that creates a long history of him in comic book movies. Because not only did he do Joker, but he was being lined up to do Batman. And then remember, he was being lined up to be, be Doctor Strange before Benedict Cumberbatch. He was going to be Doctor Strange. And then that fell apart, I think, because of the multi-film contract idea. But he's got a long history with almost doing comic book movies. Again, I have a hard time seeing him playing Batman. In any incarnation. But listen, Darren Aronofsky knows what he's going for. And if he thought Joaquin Phoenix was going to be the right fit for what he was going for, maybe it could have been great. But I'm glad history worked out the way it did because we got an Academy Award winning performance out of Joaquin Phoenix and Joker. And let's face it, he never would have been Joker if they did that Batman movie. Let's just be honest with that. All right. Let's see. Lowell writes, shout out to Geeky Gator. That was a really good question regarding James Gunn. It was a very good question regarding James Gunn, and I'm glad he wrote it in. Thank you for that, Lowell. All right. Brandon K. Avery writes in, uh, with this being 
uh, the one-year anniversary for the last Avengers film. Do you think IMAX will now release the IMAX ratio version of Infinity and Endgame on digital and 4K? Uh, the Russos stated they wanted, but what? But uh, it was IMAX's call. It's not really IMAX's call. The, the movie doesn't belong to IMAX. The movie belongs to Disney. Disney has to make that call, but IMAX would then have to sign off on that using their proprietary, you know, digital technology with how with their, their aspects and all that kind of stuff. So it's not that IMAX can release it. It's Disney's movie. Disney owns it. But if I understand it right, Disney would first of all want to do that. And then IMAX would also have to sign off on that. And I don't know if Disney wants to do that. I don't know if IMAX wants to do it, but just to be clear, it's not IMAX's movie and they don't make get to make a decision to, we're going to release an Avengers and Disney's going to go, excuse me, no, you're not. That's our movie. But I think with the the IMAX version, I think that's something they that IMAX would also have to sign off on if I'm understanding that properly. I could see it happening. Listen, Hollywood loves releasing multiple versions of movies because it makes them all a little bit more money. So I could see them doing that. Hey, you bought Avengers Endgame once already. Now buy it again in a slightly different aspect ratio. I mean, I could see them doing it. I could see them doing it. I would. I mean, it would benefit both Disney and IMAX, so I don't see why not. Uh, Tony Coran writes, Another actor who many wouldn't have chose for more adult roles based on past work is Keanu Reeves. That's true. In 1989, he was in Bill and Ted's and the next year, Point Break. I can imagine at that time, the studio may have felt that was a risk, but it totally paid off. That's a good example, Tony, because I love Point Break. Point Break is awesome with Keanu Reeves uh, as uh, Johnny Utah in that movie, right? Of course, Patrick Swayze is Bodie. That movie is great. And you're right. I think having him do that was probably seen as a little bit of a risk at the time. Because I believe that came out before Speed. I could be wrong about that. But I think, Jose, let me look this up here. I think it came out, I'm almost sure it came out bef- that it came out before Speed. So Point Break came out in 1991. Speed came out in 94. Yes. So I guarantee you Point Break is why he got Speed. So yeah. Good, good observation, man. It's like, really? The Bill and Ted guy? You want to star opposite of Patrick Swayze as the big hero in Point Break? As a former football star, collegiate football star? The guy from Bill and Ted? You're probably right. And look how it turned out. That's a good observation, Tony. I like that. All right, next up. Uh, Aqua Mexican writes, uh, Aqua Mexican Carlo writes, Hey, John, you said before that you would have liked for San Diego Comic-Con to move to Vegas. I 100% believe that. But most people have said it's not a great city for cons. Oh, they're wrong. If people, Anybody who says Vegas isn't a good city for a con has never been to a big convention in Vegas because you're, it's one of the best cities in the world for a convention. Anyway, friend of mine is in the porn and they want to move AVN but can't. Well, uh, good for them. But listen, I go to CVS. I'm not going to say every year. But I go to CES, I said CVS, I go to CES uh, about every other year or so, and I go to NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, I go to their convention almost every year as well. It is great. And I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm sorry, San Diego cannot compete with Vegas. Whereas in Vegas, in San Diego, you have a convention center that's way too small, 
and people are crowded shoulder to shoulder and can barely fit in the room with a Hall H that only seats 6,000 people. So it can only hold less than 5% of the people that go. And in a city where you have to go into a freaking lottery to maybe get a hotel room. Plus, public transportation is shut down. You can't, it's impossible to get anywhere near the convention center in an Uber or a cab or whatever, if you can even get a cab. And if you want to go eat somewhere, you're in a line for however long because every restaurant is packed. Whereas Vegas, on the other hand, their convention center is literally triple the size of San Diego's convention center. Literally that much bigger. They have the facilities to make a Hall H into an 18,000 person seat. So you can get instead of like less than 5%, you can get like 15% of the people. Basically, everybody who wants to go to Hall H at least once would probably get the opportunity to do it. In a city with so many hotels and so many hotel rooms that they never even blink. And when you do get a hotel in San Diego, you got to pay triple or quadruple the normal price because of the demand. In Las Vegas, the hotel prices wouldn't change a bit. Because there's still more than enough hotel rooms for everybody two times over. There's more places to eat. Um, There's more room. It'll be cheaper. You don't have to go into a lottery for a hotel room. There is simply nothing that isn't a superior or wouldn't be a superior experience. And I'm talking as a guy who goes to multiple conventions in Vegas every year. There is simply nothing that isn't a superior experience about going to a convention in Vegas other than San Diego. Other than the fact that San Diego is just an awesome town. I just love, I love being in San Diego. San Diego is a great town. But from a logistical point of view, there is nothing that San Diego can do nearly as well that Las Vegas can do in terms of hosting a convention. Nothing. Nothing. And again, I say that as a guy who goes to multiple conventions every year in in Las Vegas. They just do it way better. They have the facilities. They have the infrastructure. And again, I say that as a guy who just on weekends, two or three times a year, Ann and I will just get an Airbnb in San Diego and drive down to San Diego because we love that city so much. But it's from a logistical point of view, they just can't do anything nearly as well as Vegas can for a convention. San Diego was not built to to have a convention that was 180,000 people. They just weren't. But anyway, but I still love it. I still love it. Uh, anyway, Aqua Mexican Carlos also writes, Hey, John, do you watch something and wonder what you are doing in that world? I was watching Man of Steel last night and was wondering what you were doing. Let me read that again. Hey, John, I was watching something and wonder what you are doing in that world. I was watching Man of Steel last night and wondering. So I like, are you saying like watching the events of say Armageddon and thinking, what would I be doing if I was living in that world? That's actually, that's a good question. Yeah. Sometimes I think we all do. I think all of us as film fans at one degree to one degree or another aqua Mexican, we think what, how would we react in that scenario? If we were in that scenario, if we were teleported into that world with these events going on, where would we be? And what would we be doing in those events? So yeah, I think all of us do it. I think it's a good question, but I think we all do that from time to time. All right. 50 shades of geek writes one of two. Uh, a few small businesses in Israel are opening back up as evidenced by me being able to send tips to you again. So far, there's no word on when or if movie theaters will open back up, but when they do, I will be the first one there. Even if I have to wear a full body hazmat suit and eat popcorn through the breathing tube. Yes, I miss movies that much. Oh, and listen, and I'm fully expecting 50 shades that when the theaters open back up, 
there will be a number of precautions in place. I think they will have limited seating. I think they will not have, like if I buy a ticket online and then you buy a ticket online, I don't think they'll have us. I think they'll probably have seats in between. Like if I buy two tickets at once, they'll probably let me and the person I'm going with sit together, but then they'll probably always make sure to have at least a full chair in between other people. They will probably, pardon me, they'll probably have um, hand sanitizer at the front door. So for to come in, you first have to sanitize your hands. Uh, they might even request that people wear masks in the theater. I don't know. Uh, but I have a feeling when it first opens, when it first opens up, I think we're going to see some things like that. And you know what? I'm perfectly okay with that. If we have to do that for a couple of months while everything gets back to, more, to normal, I'm perfectly okay with that. I have no problem with that because I'm like you, man. I just want to get back to the damn movies. I just want to get back to the damn movies. All right. The Wakandan Forever writes, is there a limit to Super Chats? I am new to Super Chat and wanted to ask. Don't worry, John. Financially, I'm good in Wakanda. We do okay. LOL. Thanks. Yeah. Listen, I, I do. This is a good opportunity for me to say this. While I appreciate, because I have brought this up a few times. Obviously, that's what the Wakandan Forever is, is mentioning here. I appreciate, you know, part of this channel is able to exist because you guys send in the tips and send in super chats. You give us great fun things to talk about, but you also support the channel. And I'm so appreciative of that and I love it. But there have been a couple of occasions where I have written privately to some people who like send in so many things that while I totally appreciate it, and, and I do, I, I appreciate that very, very much. You got to make, I don't want people sending me tips or money if it's going to put them in a financial bind. Like, I don't want you spending money that you're supposed to be spending on groceries, sending in a tip to the John Campia show. I want you to send in tips and support the channel because you have the, the, the discretion, the discretionary money to do it. And if you do, and you want to use that discretionary money to support the channel. Awesome. Thank you for that. But what I don't want to have happen and what I don't ever want to hear is that people are sending in so many tips that they're actually spending money on sending in tips to the show that they're supposed to be spending on other things. And that's not something I ever want to hear about. And so there have actually been a couple of times where I've, I've noticed somebody sending in so much that I've had to privately write to them and say, hey, dude, listen, I really appreciate you supporting my channel. I do. Believe me, I do. But I'm a little concerned about how much money you're spending on sending in to the show because I just want to make sure you're good because I don't want you spending that money on this. It's it's fun to send in a question. It's awesome that you want to support the content that you enjoy and you want to support this show. If you enjoy watching the show and spend hours every month or every week watching it and you want to support it, awesome. That's great. Thank you. But, you know, make sure you're doing it within your means. I just don't want to hear of anybody, you know, one of the things I can't live with is find out some dude didn't eat for a week because they spent all their money sending. I mean, that's an extreme situation, but you know, I just want, just be smart about it. Just be smart about it. So other than that, Wakandan forever, um, no, there's no limits. Send in all the tips and, and chats you want. And I thank you for that. Just please. All I ask is make sure that you're doing it. You're doing it out of your discretionary finances that you have money that you have just to spend on entertainment that you just have to support the things that you want to support. Just make sure it's never coming from somewhere else. That That's all I ask. And it's a trust system. That's all I ask. Just please be be mindful. That's all I'm asking. Be mindful. But thank you for asking. I appreciate that, Wakanda Forever. All right, DC Marvel writes, 
Hey, John, let's make CampiaCon 2020 happen. We could think of some cool comic stuff to do in July. I'm telling you, I'm thinking about doing CampiaCon 2020, an all-digital virtual uh, convention. It'll be the biggest thing in the world. We'll have 5 million people live streaming all at once watching CampiaCon. It'll be the biggest thing. I will have I will have celebrities pounding on my virtual door begging me to be a part of CampiaCon 2020. Hashtag Campia 20, CampiaCon 2020. Get it, get it around. All right. Gritter Plays writes, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is in my top 10 movies of all time. I love that movie. I have a tradition of watching it once a year. I regret not seeing it in theaters. Oh, dude, I was so lucky. I got to see the first screening of it. Um, uh, Edgar Wright did the first screening of it at Comic-Con and I was lucky enough to be there and see it blown away by it. It also helps that the movie takes place in Toronto. So a little Canadian connection there, but yeah, man, I love it. And I'm glad you enjoy it too. And it is too bad, but keep your eyes open when theaters open up, they're going to be playing some catalog movies. Maybe a local screen will be playing Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And that'll give you a chance to watch it on the big screen. Anyway, I'm glad you like it too, man. Uh, All metal Mike writes, Shaun of the Dead is to horror films what Galaxy Quest is to Star Trek. That's a nice analogy, actually. Simon Pegg is an excellent and underrated actor. Hint, watch, man up. I love Simon Pegg. And I never cease to be amazed by the dude because, number one, I love him as a performer. I think he's a great comedic talent, but he can do more than that. And also, you know, he wrote the script for Star Trek um, Beyond, which was fantastic. Star Trek Beyond was fantastic fantastic i love that movie and so that is a dude who just never ceases to amaze me never ceases to amaze me that dude and i love the analogy Shaun of the dead is to horror what galaxy quest is to star trek i love that analogy so well put all metal mike appreciate that uh the gritter plays writes and we only got a few more minutes here guys uh we've gone like two hours and 45 minutes almost today uh the gritter plays writes um where are we at regarding a possible joker two. How do you visualize an older Bruce Wayne will be in it? Uh, will he still be the traditional Boy Scout, or will he be more like how his father was portrayed in Joker 1? I don't think we'll see a Bruce Wayne, to be honest with you, in a Joker 2. And even if we do, I have a feeling Joker 2 would only be like a couple years later, so so Bruce Wayne is still going to be a kid. Um, so I really don't think you're going to see any Batman presence, or even foreshadowing of Batman in anything like that. I really feel like if, if they do a Joker two, which I believe they will do, how do you have a billion dollar film and then not do a follow-up? but they never planned for, to, to, for Joker to have a sequel. Their plan was Joker is going to be a one shot movie period. And I personally feel that's how they should leave it. I don't think they should do a sequel, frankly, but from a business point of view, how do you not? The film made a billion dollars. But I have a feeling when they do, they will keep it very, very separate from Batman and probably very separate from Bruce Wayne. I think you'll see a reference. Maybe he'll still be a kid. So I really don't think you're going to see. I don't think Bruce Wayne will play much, if any, role in it, to be honest with you. I, I really don't think he will. But time will tell. Time will tell. As of right now, there's still no official green light of it. So we'll see. All right. The Wakandan Forever writes, do you have a movie moment that defined a character for you? Mine is Steve Rogers in Endgame, uh, duty and sacrifice in the military base where he looks at Peggy in the office. He says so much without saying a word. Um, man, there's, uh, that's not something I, I walk around with, with off the top of my head. But even just thinking about Captain America, I'm not even sure that that 
defined him for me. I think his definition even came before that. I think it came even earlier than that. I mean, there are so many great Captain America moments in the MCU that all were just thoroughly defining the spirit of Captain America. Like even back to the one little quick line that not a lot of people pay attention to, but that one little quick line that he says regarding vision, we don't trade lives. Like that line right there so defines his belief system. You know what? It so defines his belief system. He believes in doing the right thing right now. What is the thing in front of us? Let's not worry about what comes two or three steps later. Let's worry about that when that comes. But for now, what is the right thing to do right now? What is right? And he doesn't always have the answer, but that's what he's always going for. And that's one of the things that I really loved about that line when he says, we don't trade lives. When even there is a wisdom in saying, hey, maybe it would have been the smart thing to just throw vision into a into a grinder and, and destroy him. Maybe and and destroy the soul, destroy the time, not the time stone, destroy uh, which stone, the mind stone, destroy the mind stone. Wait, wasn't no, that wasn't the mind stone. What was the stone that was in his head again? Wasn't the soul stone? Wasn't the power stone? Wasn't the space stone? Was I can't remember which one it was. Why am I freezing? Which anyway, throw him into the grinder and destroy destroy him with it. There is some wisdom in that, but not to Captain America. That's not the right thing to do right now. We don't trade lives. Uh, it's oh, just so many like that just with cap himself just with captain america himself so many great moments like that in the mcu uh, and it just totally carries through man i mean i could go on and on as far as other characters again it's hard because i don't just have that off the top of my head i have to sit down and contemplate that for a little while but uh, it's a great topic so what about you guys answer wakandan are there some movie moments with characters that a certain moment in a movie really defined that character for you. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. Jump into the comments section and let me know. Carry on what Wakanda was just bringing up. Uh, all right. Uh, Wakanda Forever also writes, Rob, who's clearly not here and hasn't been here for about 45 minutes or actually an hour now. Uh, Rob, you have a favorite action figure you own? I'm trying to remember. I think he's told me before he's got a favorite, but I can't remember what it is. I'll ask him that next time, though. All right. Curtis Lopez writes, Princess Bride will be on Disney Plus May 1st. That's one of my favorite movies ever. I think for almost everybody, Princess Bride is one of their favorite movies ever. I love The Princess Bride. I'm so glad it's going to be on Disney+. Plus. Thank you for letting me know about that, Curtis. All right, Anthony Enoch Jr. writes, Hey, John, thanks for the content. Oh, and it's a $50 Super Chat. Thank you, Anthony, for supporting the channel on that level. I appreciate it very much, man. And if there's a question in here, then not only will I answer it now, it'll be answered in its own standalone video in the next couple of weeks. All right, Anthony Enoch Jr. writes, Hey, John, thanks for the content. I've cried the hardest twice in my life. One, my grandfather's funeral. And two, the last act of Endgame. The fan service was just so overwhelming. Wanted to know, uh, has a film ever made you react this way before? Um, and by the way, listen, a lot of Endgame is pure fan service. But like a lot of other things in movies, fan service is not inherently a bad thing. Fan service can be a very good thing. And I think Endgame was a great example of utilizing um, fan service really effectively and really well. And that's a good thing. So anyway, a movie that really like moved me that emotionally at the end. Well, I, you guys have heard me talk about both of these films before. Best of the best. I'm not saying best of the best is as good of a movie as Endgame. Don't get me wrong. But best of the best, man, when Eric... Roberts is standing there in line and Tommy Lee 
his his teammate on the American Taekwondo team, you know, is standing there and across from him, Dehan, his ultimate mortal enemy who killed his brother, has the gold medal around his neck. Dehan stumbles and staggers across the aisle to go to Tommy. He takes the medal off himself and puts it on Tommy and says, I deeply regret the loss of your brother and I offer myself to you as your new brother. Mm. It doesn't matter how many times I think about that moment. That is the ultimate grr moment. That and, and Rohan shall answer. But I'm telling you, I deeply regret the loss of your brother and I offer myself as your new brother. Oh my God. That, just thinking about it. I can think about that scene every day and I'll still have the same emotional impact. Like my blood is rushing right now just thinking about that scene. That scene to me, Anthony, that scene to me at the end of of uh, Best of the Best with James Earl Jones, Eric Roberts, that uh, uh, Chris Penn, by the way, is in that too. That, mmm. Yeah, that's that moment for me, Anthony. That's that oh moment for me. Anyway, thank you for sharing that, dude. And we will talk about that again in a couple weeks in its own standalone video. Just keep your eyes open to that. Thanks for sharing that, Anthony. All right, next up, Curtis Lopez writes, Movies I think theaters should open up with are Avengers, Titanic, Dark Knight, Return of the King, The Lion King, the original animated one, Star Wars New Hope, Matrix, Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Back to the Future. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I think the key is going to be cataloged films. Big celebration cataloged films. For the most part, I think ones that haven't been on the big screen in a while, but with one or two exceptions. Avengers Endgame, I think, is an exception. It's It's been a year since we've seen it on the big screen. Put it back on the big screen. Give everybody a chance to go see it again. Uh, Avatar, you know, the, the, the long-time number one box office film of all time, now number two. I think you got to put that one back out again because it's been a decade since people have seen that on the big screen. Uh, although I'm sure Disney plans to re-release it again sometime in the future anyway. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Curtis. Catalog films are the way they're going to have to go. Absolutely. All right. Curtis Lopez also writes, unpopular opinion, watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I believe Eowyn totally should have been queen and rule Gondor alongside Aragorn. She's a badass. Uh, she's in the fight and killed the Nazgul Kong. I am no man. Uh, she's wife material and she can have my babies. Yes, but he was already in love. He was already in love. And remember, she wasn't of Gondor. She's of Rohan. And I think she probably does take over Rohan, as a matter of fact. I mean, I don't know. And I'm not quite sure. I can't remember exactly what happens in the books. But in the movies, my assumption is that she becomes the ruler of Rohan. You know, uh, Aragorn becomes king of Gondor and unites all of men. But there's still Rohan. And Rohan just came and saved Gondor's ass. So I would kind of think that, but as much as, yeah, she is anybody's love of their lives, anybody's, you know, anybody's stay close to me, Pippin. Anyway, but he was already in love with a damn immortal elf. So, you know, he had to stay true to himself, man, had to stay true to himself. All right. I get that. All right. Next up, uh, Kenneth Dowling writes. Hey, John, happy Monday. Did you watch the Jordan uh, documentary, The Last Dance, last night? It was great. I have not, but me and a couple of friends plan on watching that together. I've been very excited for this. Uh, I was a little busy last night. We had a game night with some friends, plus I had to write show notes for today's show. Uh, so I do very much plan on watching it. We just haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I will. I absolutely will. All right. Caden writes, did you see the fake Mando season two trailer by IGN? Yeah, I, I thought it was lame, to be honest with you. 
I get it, it's 420, but it's not April Fool's. I, whatever, I'm in the minority. I think a lot of people are getting a kick out of it. I thought it was kind of dumb because I'm watching it because they say it's an official trailer for Mandalorian season two. I'm like, all right, I guess that makes sense because Mandalorian has already finished shoot, shooting season two. There could be a trailer. So I'm watching it. I'm realizing this is all stuff from season one. And then, of course, they get to the Yoda thing. And I'm like, all right, so this is clearly a gag. It's well done, though. I got to hand them, give them credit. It is very well done. It is very imaginative. I I didn't get as big of a kick out of it as a lot of other people did. But hey, whatever. It was done and fun. So it is what it is. All right. Uh, Wakanda Forever writes, uh, start any new habits since the shutdown. Journal. No, here's the funny thing. Is that I already work from home, right? So my daily routine has actually not changed all that much compared to say somebody like my wife who has to now work at home. She's never done that. There's a total change of routine for her. For me, it's not that much. Like my routine from 5 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. has stayed exactly the same as it always has, right? Because that's when I work. I work from 5 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. That's my work day. And then if I have to go to screenings or viewings or whatever later in the evening or do some stuff later in the evening, there's that too. But, and for that, nothing's really changed. So no, I can honestly, the only habit that's sort of changed is that uh, me and, and our friends do a little bit more online gaming together. Like we get together on Zoom and play some games together. But honestly, that's the biggest change. And we eat at home a lot more now, obviously, because Anne and I, we like going out together. So about three nights a week, we would go out to a restaurant to eat. Uh, not always nice restaurants. I mean, quite often it's like, you know, chilies. I like chilies. Sue me. But um, that's been a change. So eating at home a lot more. Um, we've we signed up for one of those food, like those pre chef made boxes. The box shows up. It's got like five meals in it with all the ingredients and the recipe. And then you make it together. So Ann and I make dinner together more than we used to. That's actually been kind of nice. But uh, other than that, honestly, for me, I've been lucky. It, my, my habits and routines haven't changed that much. All right. Uh, Matthew Dakutras writes, you getting back and forth from LA to Seattle reminded me of six feet under best end ending ever better than Lord of Rings or Endgame and best show after the wire. You know what? A lot of people don't talk about six feet under anymore, but when six feet under was on, that's all anybody talked about when six feet under was on, it was a legit pop cultural phenom. And, and it's it's often surprised me that it has not stood up well. Not that the quality of the show hasn't stood up well, but I mean, the the buzz about the show. Because you bring up The Wire, everybody talks about The Wire. Everybody still talks about um, uh, The Shield. Everybody still talks about uh, Sopranos. Everybody still talks about Battlestar Galactica. But, but Six Feet Under was super popular. And I wonder why it doesn't get as much talk today. So I'm glad you brought that up, Matthew. Good on you for that. All right. Let's see. Manir Haku writes, heard about Aaron's friend Nick losing a leg. Yeah, that, that was, it was on the front page of CNN, actually. So you guys know, Anna's, or Anne, Aaron has been talking about uh, for a couple of weeks now. Um, there is a friend that Aaron and her husband, Tom, have. I believe it was he was in their wedding party, too. This guy was in their wedding party. And he got the coronavirus. Young, super in shape, Broadway TV star dude. And he's been in a coma, in a medically induced coma. And then I found out 
from the front page of CNN's website uh, yesterday, or it might have been two days ago that I found out, that uh, they had to amputate his leg uh, as a part of a complication brought on by the coronavirus that he has. And I haven't talked to Aaron since that happened. I mean, the dude's still alive. That's the main thing. But um, yeah, it was just brutal to hear about that. And I haven't talked to Aaron yet, but I will pass on your condolences, uh, Mahir. Thanks for saying that, man. It's very thoughtful of you. All right. Just a couple more minutes here, guys, and we got to wrap up. Uh, I, I cannot go longer than three hours. All right. Star Wars Rocks writes, uh, one or two. Hi, John. Have you ever heard of an anime called Code Geese? Uh, Lelouch. Le uh, Lelouch, yeah, uh, of the Rebellion. If you haven't, then you you can get it on Netflix. There are two seasons. The episodes are 30 minutes long, so you could try it out over your lunch break. I think it could be adapted to live action. I have never even heard of this one, Star Wars Rocks, to be honest with you. But you know what? If it's just a little one, it's like 30 minutes, you can check out one thing. I might check that out. So let me just get, let me see if I'm getting this. Code Gase? I want to say Geese, but there's an A in there. So I'm going to say Gase. Uh, Lelouch. Of the Rebellion. Code Gase, the Louch of the Rebellion. I've never even heard of it. First time I'm ever hearing of it. But I'll tell you what, when I'm sitting down, if if there's not other things already lined up in my queue, I will, I will see if I can pop that on and check that out just to give the first few minutes of it a try. Thank you for the recommendation, man. I always like it when people do. And by the way, it's probably a lot of people going, yes, we love that show already, but I've not heard of it yet, but that'll be good. All right. Jay Master writes, hey, John. Uh, someone mentioned that Knives Out will end up on Disney Plus, but how would the work that work since Knives Out is a Lionsgate picture property? Oh, I don't know. Is is it a Lionsgate property? I don't know. Haven't th- I haven't thought about that. You you know what? You're right. That's probably a big thing I miss because it's like ah oh, no, that'll probably end up on Disney Plus. But but you're right. It's not a Fox film unless Fox was a distributor. Like was Lionsgate the producer and did Fox distribute it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's a good point, Jay Master. Thank you for bringing that up. That's something I totally overlooked. This is why it's good that it's not just me. We've got the whole film fan community here, too, to correct little things like that. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a really big oversight, that on my part. Henri Martens writes, uh, caught up on some Disney classics, Dumbo, Lady and the Tramp, Robin Hood, Black Cauldron, and The Great Mouse Detective. Anne loves that one. Uh, love the trippy elephants on Parade Sequence and Dumbo and the cinematic fight scene in Mouse Detective. Of the five, which one do you like the most? Robin Hood. I Listen, and we've been talking about the Robin Hood one a little bit recently because there's talk of them doing an animated live action hybrid, like a live action but with animated characters. Um, hybrid movie of that Robin Hood classic with the Fox's Robin Hood. Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest. Anyway. Um, oh, with the Prince John. and this, oh, So good. Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to tell you it's the one that should be your favorite, but I've got a real special place in my heart, Henry, uh, for, for that Robin Hood movie. I adore that movie. All the other ones you mentioned are great too, but that Robin Hood one is a very, very special place in my heart. So I'm going to go Robin Hood. All right. Uh, Russell Amador. And oh, guys, we got through all the questions here. It only took us three hours, but we did. Russell Amador writes in, Venom 2 trailer to debut at Campion Con 2020. Book it. Mark it down. That's what I'll talk to Andy Circus. We'll make it happen. Venom 2 trailer to debut at Camp- Campion Con 2022. I'm telling you, it's more than just an idea. It's a movement. Campion Con 2020 is more than an idea. It's a movement. It's going to sweep across the nation. I'm telling you. Anyway, thanks for writing that in, Russell. And all right, guys, that will do it for today's installment of the John Campion Show 
Thank you guys so much for being here and being a part of the show today. Special thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett for being here. Guys, special thanks to all of you for being here and making this show a part of your day. Time is valuable. And the fact that you choose to spend some of your time hanging out with us here is something that is not lost on us and we appreciate it very, very much. And a very special thank you to all you guys who sent in the questions via the tip or via Super Chat, not just because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but you also supported the channel while you were doing it and all of us here at the John Campus Show, thank you very much for that. All right, guys, that will do it for me for now. Thanks so much for being here. My name is John Campia. Make sure you join us again tomorrow and until next time, bye-bye.